Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter, at political underscore beats. Find us on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. We ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right at nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast link. You'll find all the fine NR podcasts and audio, including back episodes of Political Beats. Listen, enjoy, share, and please leave reviews to help others find the program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Flair. Jeff, how are you? Well, if people want to hear me, Scott, you can tell them that I'm easily found. You can tell them there's a spot on National Review. You can tell them there's a podcast on the edge of town. <laughs> Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. And we uh, welcome our guest for today's program. And we kept it in-house today. He's a senior writer at National Review. And on Twitter at BaseballCrank. He's Dan McLaughlin. Dan, thanks for joining us once again. Glad to be here. No D- sin to be glad you're here. Yes. Uh, Dan joined us previously for our Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers episode, and he's back again today. Uh, before we get to our our artist, Dan, give people a little background on yourself and what you're doing. Your, your job title has shifted since your last uh, appearance here on Political Beat, so uh, tell people about that. Yeah, so um, uh, I started as a politics, I'm a senior writer now at National Review. I started as a politics columnist in college. Our sports columnist at the time was uh, Bill Simmons, who now runs The Ringer. So my sort of short bio is I started writing uh, baseball blogging, essentially, on Bill's site when he was back in uh, Boston uh, in 2000, Um, you know, after terrorists blew up my office uh, in, the, in the World Trade Center, I felt the pull of politics again, started blogging, did some various group blogs. I was at Red State from 2004 to 2016, um, came over to National Review in uh, 2016. And just this March, um, I got an offer to, from National Review to come in-house full-time. Uh, so after 23 years of practicing law, I became a full-time writer uh, now senior writer at National Review. And um, so essentially in, in mid-March of 2020, when the entire world was going to temporarily working from home, I went to permanently working from home. <laughs> and of course, people can find uh, writings alongside the podcasts at nationalreview.com. Dan is back with us today to take a swing at uh, one of those big uh, I don't know, big apples that are still out there, the, the low-hanging fruit for us to, to pick. Uh, almost certainly our most requested artist to do an episode on. And so big, of course, we break this into two parts. This part one for Bruce Springsteen. Dan, we invite you to take the floor. Tell us why you love Bruce Springsteen, how you got into him, and why anybody else should care about the music made by the boss. Sure. Well, I, I was born in 1971 in Teaneck, New Jersey, so I'm, I'm roughly about the same age as Bruce's recording career. <laughs> um, my parents were Manhattan people, but they, uh, growing up, but they uh, dated and courted on the shore. We vacationed on the shore a good deal when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Nanuet, New York, which is literally the next town over from Blauvelt, where 914 Studios is, where Bruce recorded Born to Run, uh, as well as some of his uh, earlier albums. Um, you know, my dad was a cop. I grew up among the 
basically Irish and Italian Catholic children of cops and firemen. Um, I, I went to high school in uh, northern New Jersey, um, in uh, Montvale, New Jersey, uh, from 1985 to 89. So all of which is a way of saying I grew up very much in a Bruce Springsteen world. Um, uh, I got into rock and roll generally, uh, and Bruce in particular, in the early 80s. Uh, through my older brother's record collection. So he got The River, which is really where I started hearing Bruce. Born in the USA, coming out when I was about 14 is really the point at which Bruce became my favorite artist um, and has been essentially the soundtrack of my life more than any other artist uh, ever since then. Um, you know, I have probably like a thousand Bruce tracks or something in my, my out of about 8,000 or so in my iTunes library. Um, I would say uh for as a as a caution here that i would consider myself sort of a, a brown belt in bruce springsteen um <laughs> in the sense that you know compared to an ordinary normal human being i have a ridiculous amount of my brain devoted to bruce um but at the same time there are people who are an entire level of bruce fandom above me that i just have to bow in their presence you know i I haven't seen Bruce like a hundred times in concert. I've seen him four times in full concert uh, and a handful of other times in, you know, one-off appearances here and there. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not one of the guys who can off the top of his head, tell you the best five shows of every single Bruce tour uh, or, or something like that. But I, I have, uh, I've been a Bruce guy for a long time and I think we'll get probably more in the second episode into some of the reasons Bruce is particularly important. So the weird thing about me is that I am actually a black belt when it comes to Bruce Springsteen. I can tell you every single show that he ever played from the years 1972, say, to 1980, that's of any note or any importance. All the best recordings, where the rarities are, where he played that, you know, uh, that one early version of Zero and Blind Terry called Phantoms back in 1973, opening for the band Chicago in their stadium tour. I can tell you all about that kind of weird stuff, the odds, the ends, everything that fell through the cracks. I know 
all of that stuff. In fact, there was a period in my life where I was absolutely obsessed with Bruce Springsteen's, particularly his his concert recordings and his outtakes, those sorts of things. I I, I still have this stuff uh, deposited, you know, you know, in sort of you know the mental filing cabinet of my brain, and I can <laughs> I can recall almost all of it rotely. Um, and ironically enough, these days I, I have a much more skeptical uh, opinion of, of Springsteen than than you do, or maybe even than Scott does. That's a very strange place to to sort of evolve into. And I don't really know if it's his fault. I think perhaps it's overplaying <clears throat> this music and hearing it overplayed, and sort of maybe sort of the the. What do you want to call it? The boomer ubiquity of Bruce Springsteen. We have to really understand what Springsteen meant to a certain generation of listeners, too. This is this is something. How did I get into him? I got him because of my dad. My dad's older than all of us. You know, he's born in 1943, right? And so he was like what? He was in his late uh, late twenties when Bruce Springsteen first got you know big. Actually, he's probably his early thirties when when like you know Wildy Innocent and Born to Run were out and they were big, uh, and he saw him in you know like the pre-Born to Run era. He saw him at Carter Barron Amphitheater in Washington D.C. He saw him playing small clubs. He he saw him. He got both time and newsweek when bruce springsteen was on the cover of both simultaneously back that one week in 1975 you know uh so i grew up at the foot of my father learning about the myth of the boss and what it meant to a guy my dad's from new york from western new york though he's not from like the new york city area but you know he still spoke to him on a way that that no artist prior to him had because what did Springsteen do? He wasn't just, you know, a rock and roller. He was literate and he was poetic. And maybe too sort of self-consciously Dylan asking his early career, which we'll talk about. But but he he was just the absolute embodiment of of, you know, rock and roll energy, especially in his live act. But there were other parts about it that my dad found almost idealistic. That, that this guy was representing uh, rock and roll, particularly in the 70s, as, as something that it was always supposed to be. It was, you know, it was fun, it was sexy, but it wasn't salacious, it was innocent, there was a power to it, but there, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't like a darkness or a threateningness to it, which would come into his music a little bit later on. also pointed out how it was an effortlessly integrated band band that just had two african-american members in it an italian guy and a bunch of irish guys 
a Dutch guy. Bruce Springsteen is Dutch. But I remember, uh, you know, there used to be the jokes that all the Jewish mothers would like Bruce Springsteen. He's like, oh, Bruce Springsteen, he's such a nice young Jewish boy because <laughs> they thought the name was Jewish. But no, it's a Dutch reformed name, actually. Uh, the effortless integration of that band, uh, especially, you know, in an era that was coming out of the 60s, was almost like a representation of, you know, our better angels and what we could be as a culture. These guys were just as friends, guys he knew growing up. Dave Sanctious, Clarence Clemens. You know, these are just guys that he met. It wasn't like he was consciously trying to do this. It was sort of like an East Coast version of what Sly and the Family Stone was during their early years. So you had all that going for Springsteen, and then you had the music, the music which kept evolving and changing album by album. And, of course, he took his sweet and bitter time moving from one album to the next, uh, which, of course, is half the story of Bruce Springsteen's artistic evolution. So you had all of this, and this is, of course, I think his day decade the 70s going all the way up to say 1980 which is the at the river which is where we're going to be ending this show this is the springsteen decade and there are people who never liked springsteen and will never get him i have a russian friend who simply is incapable of understanding why people like bruce springsteen because i think maybe on a cultural level it's just totally alien to him like there's there's nothing like the jersey shore in moscow right (laughs) and so if you don't know about this you're not gonna you know you don't have these sort of cultural touchstones and reference points maybe springsteen won't mean anything to you but he meant an enormous amount to me and to my family growing up as a kid and i have to say that no matter how jaded I can get at this time no matter how many hot takes I'll have about albums like Born in the USA or or even Born to Run for that matter, this music still holds up and there's a reason he is as Scott said, probably our most requested artist on this show myself as uh, I will not go as far as to say that that Bruce Springsteen is is my rush as uh, as Jeff identified during the rush episode of never having knowingly heard a rush song in his entire life before plotting uh, and, and planning and preparing for our rush episode but I will say I have intentionally through most of my life um, not delved into the catalog of Bruce Springsteen I have been surrounded by Bruce Springsteen fans my entire life. Uh, I've been surrounded by Springsteen music my entire life. I have heard Springsteen songs, of course. I've heard the singles. I've heard virtually every track on Born in the USA. Um, you know, I, 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 people have, have, have tried to play me things. I have never 
dive deep. In fact, until prepping for this show, I had never listened to an entire Springsteen album from front to back. And now, of course, I, I have many times over. Which is to say, I, I, I don't know all of the myths of Springsteen. I don't know all the stories of Springsteen. I don't know... Uh, uh, certainly the black belt or even brown belt knowledge uh, that, that Dan has on Bruce Springsteen. I am a music lover new uh, to a vast majority of Bruce Springsteen's music entering this episode. And we'll certainly get into uh, the individual tracks and albums through this first episode. But what I will say from the front is, at least for this decade, as Jeff just defined it, you know, from 71, 72 through, through the river in 1980, that I uh, am beginning to understand what makes it so appealing and, and why people like it. And yes, I liked it too. Um, I, I, I don't know what the hot takes might be from me being a, a neophyte uh, Bruce listener, but you'll hear my, my thoughts loud and clear through the episode. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line is, I, I the weird thing is, so many bands that I actually like, uh, bands that have been putting out music through the 90s and the, and the aughts, uh, many of the bands I like are pegged as influenced by Bruce Springsteen. Now, certainly there are a ton of bands out there influenced by Bruce, but these specific bands have been, oh, they're, they're very friends with Bruce, they've played with Bruce, Bruce has jammed with them, is very influenced, and I never really could figure that out. And now I, I have, having heard a lot of this stuff from the 70s, because it's it's not born in the USA that was influencing these bands. It was a lot of the albums we're going to talk about today. So my, my point of view on, on the Springsteen music we're going to hear today is from, from a guy who largely had not heard uh, a good majority of the music until this week, but comes away with a, an, an appreciation of Springsteen, uh, the artist, uh, and, and the writer. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but man, Springsteen, the writer, uh, just excellent. Uh, but that, that's where I'm coming from as we talk about this this decade of Springsteen's music. I think the thing that is probably best to do here is to spare people the sort of the long and I consider somewhat boring story about Bruce Springsteen's early years. And just sort of get to the interesting stuff. So I mean, what's the short version of where does Bruce come from, right? You know, he's guy he's been playing in bands. You know, he of course grew up on the Jersey Shore. Uh, I think he was born in like Long Branch or something like that. And then uh, I think he goes to California for a little while with his family. Then he comes back to Jersey. And what does he do? He starts lots of rock and roll bands because that's what he loved. That's what he loved watching and listening to as a kid. So like, you know, he does all these kind of almost hilariously failed bands. There are bootlegs out there of like pre-1972 uh, Bruce Springsteen playing in like these weird power rock, like, <laughs> you know, bands like called steel mill we he's actually got a lot of the members of what would become the east street band he's got like Vinny lopez there and danny federici and steve van zandt and stuff like that but this music is just so wrong i don't know so i mean i know dan has heard some of this right um this music doesn't work <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't it, he doesn't have any of his songs yet too so like you know he's playing like all of these these original songs but they're bad originals they're like it kind of reminds me of like the early rem like proto rem in 1980 where like they played a bunch of like songs that they would immediately throw away once they figured <laughs> out how to write better music um and and none, none of this works um and so yeah you know, i think if you if you listen to um because bruce's autobiography uh had had the disc of, of some uh some music to go with it and and first of all the the 
small selection of early Bruce that is on even an official Bruce release gives you an idea of what he thinks of the music. I, I, I think Steel Mill is really, you know, if you're like a Bruce fan, it's worth listening to as a kind of archaeological thing. Right. Um, because it's fascinating that he, he was in this kind of cream style power trio. It was like mountain more like to me. Yeah, you know? mountain or cream. And, and, and I think he says that he's very influenced by mountain. And it's not that it's bad, but it's just not. It's nowhere on the same level. And it's, I, I don't think any there's anybody really out there who like has a hankering to listen to some steel mill once they've once they've checked it out just for curiosity. Yeah, I mean, and then he, he, he actually some of those early band names were pretty funny. I think he was in another one called the Doctor Zoom and the Sonic Boom, which I actually, <laughs> you know, he probably should have kept that one. That's, that was a that's, band of the Muppets bad. episode, wasn't it? It really does sound like a Muppet band name, doesn't it? And then there was like the Bruce Springsteen band. But it was all the basic same kind of like, you know, dense, sort of sludgy almost rock and roll music. None of the sprightliness that you would sort of come to associate with, you know, we think of his classic early live Springsteen performances. Um, but then what happens is that, you know, first of all, he's not just, you know, playing this, this very sludgy electric band. He's also a fairly gifted uh, acoustic guitar player. And he writes and composes a lot on his acoustic guitars. And what did he do? But he uh, met this guy, guy by the name of Mike Appel. Is it Appel or Apple? I never know. Probably um, Appel, I think. Appel. Mike Appel, who's uh, another Jersey guy who who's just wowed by his talent and says, I want to manage you. I want to be your producer, too. That's always a bad thing. Don't ever let somebody be both your manager and your producer. That's the Andrew Luke Oldham thing, and it never works out well. Didn't ultimately work out well in this case, too. But Appel did spend a lot of time hawking his wares around, and what he did is he got Bruce Springsteen to record a ton of demos for him, and he gave them to everybody who would even listen for five seconds, and one person he gave them to was none other than John Hammond Sr., same guy who discovered Bob Dylan for Columbia Records back in the early 60s. It's a pretty impressive pedigree. And Hammond was hugely impressed by him. Brought him into the studio, said, play some stuff for me. And so what's the first song that brings Bruce Springsteen plays for John Hammond? It's a song called If I Was the Priest on Piano. Now if Jesus was a sheriff man I were the priest If my lady there was an heiress And my mama That is the moment where Hammond said, like, kind of words that would come to haunt Springsteen for a really long time throughout the early part of his career, which is like, you're the next Dylan. You're the new Bob Dylan. Uh, I'm just blown away with the the songwriting talent, the lyrical talent, the creativity, the wordplay, and you're going to be the new Dylan. And that kind of brings us to his first album, Greetings from Asbury Park, which was originally going to be primarily just an acoustic guitar and piano-based production. Uh, But Bruce Springsteen, instead of being this big rock and roll star like he was with the Bruce Springsteen band and Steel Mill, he's playing a lot of these acoustic instruments in his original take on Greetings from Asbury Park. And I think 
well, most of us are agreed that it isn't terribly successful. Anybody? We're not talking about the the band stuff, which he would do later when he mm. went back to re-record it. I'm just talking about those early acoustic songs. What do you guys think of Acoustic Bruce? Dan, I know you're a huge fan of this era. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm. I'm. We're we're being a little harsh here. Yeah, I, I. I. My my two two of my overarching takes on Bruce are number one, I can't stand the like slow mopey Bruce. Um, and I, there's a lot of good acoustic Bruce, but almost in every case that there's acoustic Bruce, it's better electric, it's better with the band. Um, so in that sense, uh, you know, I think he's, he's doing some rough drafts here that are interesting, but, but mostly only they're interesting because they become better songs. And I know one of the, one of the big sweeping acoustic epics that he cuts from this album at the last minute, uh, a song called Visitation at Fort Horn. And it's, um, Again, you know, you might want to go back and listen to it to find out what this sounds like, but it's uh, it, the album was much better off without it. I like that song. I have to say, I, okay, I'll, I'll confess. Uh, this, ironically enough, the acoustic numbers that made it onto this record are terrible. I hate the angel, and I've never liked Mary Queen of Arkansas. In fact, for a long time, I considered Mary Queen of Arkansas to be the worst Bruce Springsteen song of all time. <laughs> uh, and then I started listening to some stuff on his more recent albums, and I say, well, okay, that's been passed up. But there's like a lot of slow, mopey Bruce songs that were recorded for this record that I think are actually really great. Jazz musician, which is him at the piano. I like that. I like the lady and the doctor. There's this goofy song called Cowboys of the Sea. And I swear to God that the cowboys he's referring to are actually like uh, sperm whales, that those are the cowboys of the sea, that he's actually writing a song about whales. Uh, but, you know, how can you admit that outright? And then there's things like Two Hearts and True Waltz Time. That's a very fast, peppy acoustic song. Oh, she breaks with the dawn and by morning she's gone Leaving nothing but another night She returns to her home like a dog Returns for a ball Another unsatisfied wife And in his little booth Secure from the truth He wants her more and he's got the guts to say But as she needs to be real He needs to conceal The realness of his place So he sings a little song And in a chiffon sarong She performs the black ballet in space But she's just another flop With a fancy name all this stuff got cut from the record because at the last second he kind of realized that wait a second this is this is not a great way to launch a career this is slow mopey boring music i think i'm going to record some more band tracks and that's where we get i guess the real beginning of what people think of when they think of bruce they think of growing up they think of it's hard to be a saint in the city they think of for you they think especially of the last two songs that were recorded for this album which are spirit in the night and blinded by the light what do you guys think of i guess the real greetings from asbury park scott listening to this um actually you know listening to this for the first time my my initial reaction is wow that's where manford man got all his material i i right. knew that yeah I knew. right he did he not only did blind up by the light but he also did spirit in the night right and for you 
Uh, he he did, didn't know that one. Yeah, though. he did three. So I'm listening to this, and I knew that Manfred Mann, or the Blinded by the Light, was a Springsteen track. The only Springsteen pen track ever to make it to number one of the charts, if I'm not mistaken. By and, the way, David Bowie also did two songs from this album. He did Growing Up, and It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. Ah. So like like everybody's everybody's still on the songs from this album, <laughs> and then Manfred Mann did "For You," which uh, I, I think uh, their version is also very good, and "Spirit in the Night" as well. So that's my first reaction. Oh, that's where Manfred Mann is source material. Um, this is an interesting listen. The, the Dylan influence is really heavy, and I would say overbearing in a, in a couple of places. Um, like the does this bus stop on 82nd Street, and a little bit on it's hard to be a saint in the city. But, you know, the touchstone for the music on this album is not, you know, directly what you might expect for an artist in 72, meaning it's, it's I don't think you draw a line like directly from the Beatles to this, you do, not from the Rolling Stones or the Who or the Kinks. It's, it's definitely Dylan. Uh, it's definitely Van Morrison. And so it's a different sort of uh, feel, different sort of sound. It's, it's, um, it's rooted in more of like a folky jazz and and definitely soul which i think will creep more and more into uh his work in in the future but that that's where a lot of these songs are originating from and i if i read correctly it was clive davis the famous record executive who convinced springsteen to put a few more band tracks on this album which is where spirit in the night and and blinded by the light uh sort of come from those those last additions to the album uh, it, it's a fun listen. It's a it's a good listen. I, I, I think of of these uh, what five albums we're going to talk about today. This is my least favorite, probably by 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 a little bit. But it doesn't mean there's not good stuff. I, I, Growing up might be my favorite song uh, from this album. Uh, it's got the tightest structure, really nice rollicking bass line to it. Well, I stood stone like at midnight, suspended in my masquerade. And I comb my hair that was just right And command of the night brigade I was open to pain and crossed by the rain And I walked on a crooked crutch I strolled all along to a fallout zone Came out with my soul untouched I hid in the cloud and rather the crowd When they said sit down I stood up That, that's one that uh, that I like an awful lot. Uh, Blended by the Light. I, I think Manfred Mann may have gotten the better of that. I mean, he did no, take it to number no, one. You don't think? No, heresy, heresy. I, I, I think that Manfred Mann identified the ridiculousness Manfred in the Mann lyrics. Manfred Mann puts chopsticks into that Yes, song, yes, and kind of like a spacey sci-fi guitar to it. I, uh, <sighs> you know, bringing the lyrics to the forefront and really highlighting the, I mean, the rhyming dictionary quality of the lyrics of Blinded by the Light, I think works in Manfred Mann's favor. I, I think his version, or Springsteen's version of For You is very good, uh, a song that I've known for a long time but not heard Springsteen's version. And, and the one last thing, you know, Spirit in the Night is a good song, and we'll talk more about this to come, but you could never listen to the studio version, the album version of Spirit in the Night again, once you've heard how that sounds live. There's no comparison whatsoever to how good that, that song sounds in a in a live setting, and that would be the case with some of these early songs. Wild Billy was a crazy cat, and he sucks on the sound of his 
Cold scan cow, quite trust some of this. It'll show you where you're at. At least it'll help you pretty feel it. Very decent debut. Again, I think a little too Dylan-esque in some places, uh, but some highlights. Yeah, this is, this is. I mean, this is a strong debut album. Um, and if you look at it from that perspective, uh, it's definitely a good album. I mean, I share Jeff's contempt for The Angel and Mary, Queen of Arkansas. Those are both just awful songs. Um, but, you know, you, not, every, not every debut album is going to be hitting on every... Uh, track I, I, and I agree with Scott. I mean, look, every one of these songs, with the possible exception of "Blinded by the Light," um, which I'll get to in a minute, but every one of these songs is going to sound better live. Uh, some of them get, you know, one of the amazing things about Bruce is the way that these songs get reinvented and reinvented over and over again, and also the way they grow. I mean, "Growing Up" is such a, it's a such a, you know, barely out of your teen years song, and Bruce is like 22, 23 <laughs> when he writes it. Um, and if you listen to him perform it in the mid seventies and you listen to him perform it on, uh, you know, on, on like the live in Dublin where he does it with the Seeger session fan, you listen to it even in Springsteen on Broadway where he's doing it very much as an old man. Um, the song holds up perfectly well at all these different stages of Bruce's life Mm -hmm. where he's just able to perform it differently, but, but the lyrical structure of it, you know, even as young as he is, he's not writing the kind of songs that you're going to be embarrassed to sing when you're 40. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with Scott. I think Blanford Mann's version of Blinded by the Light is a lot of fun. Uh, and I frankly, I think I heard it probably a good number of times before I heard Bruce's. Um, I think the student, but, you know, Bruce, obviously, he it, this is, that's the most, that and 82nd Street are the most seriously Dylan-esque songs here. You can't shake the Dylan Um uh, influence all that off that i actually really like the live version on live in dublin of blinded by the light which is totally reimagined um lost in the flood is one that i think doesn't work all that well on the album but some of the later if you listen to some of the later kind of real hard rock versions of it that that are on on like live in new york city um and and certainly spirit in the night is one that was an absolute live standard and that really does point the way forward to where Bruce is going. I think one of the interesting things about Springsteen's entire like album canon is that none of these songs have died. All right. 
None of them. Not a single one from every album. And I guess that's you know probably a function of having a, a performing career that, that's lasted like what well over fifty years or something like that, nearly fifty years at this point. Uh, so like for the longest time, he wasn't playing any songs from Greetings from Asbury Park live. And then somewhere around like two thousand and nine, he said like Screw it! I'm going to play the entire album. I'm going to play all of them again. He even whipped out the Angel and just played it for a laugh because you know I was like, hey, might as well. Uh, so it's really fun to see how these things constantly get reinvented. But what I hear when I listen to the original album is what, what absolutely overwhelms me about it and one of the reasons why i really enjoy this record despite those two flawed you know acoustic songs is the energy the youthful energy and and the sort of uh, this the absolutely fearless rhyming dictionary approach you know you get exactly why people was like oh here's the new dylan right and you can also get why he shrank from that you know in the next couple of years because it, it was sort of you know it was a millstone around his neck but when i listen to, to the joy of you know the way Springsteen with, with the rowdy band of, you know, friends and ruffians that he has playing with him comes out of the, the middle eight on blinded by the light where he's like some hazards from Harvard were skunked on beer playing backyard bomb, but dear Scotland yard was trying hard. They sent some dude with a call on card said, do what you like, but don't do it here. So I jumped up, turned around, spit in the air, fell on the ground. I mean, just come bam, 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 bam. He's, very young this is his debut album this is the first song on it but he's already got a mastery of meter and he's already got a like just uh he's able to summon a sort of reckless youthful abandon that was unlike anything else that was being done everybody always in, in the second album it's going to become even much that much more obvious everybody compared him to van morrison but van morrison wasn't writing this kind of music van morrison was a much more i guess i suppose a serious minded man you know very dark and dense and brooding you know a little you know midget tyrant who would always stalk around the stage <laughs> you know five foot one chain smoking cigarettes and yelling at his band this is you know this is you know a bunch of kids just gaggling out of a car and playing on a street corner and having fun <laughs> Kind of what the East Street Shuffle is, is about, if you if you listen to the second album, and also uh, you know the, the other lyrics on this album that will jump out at you are, are stuff like from growing up, you know, where is is 
maybe like the single uh, most scene setting and iconic Bruce Springsteen lyric of all time comes from growing up where he says, I swear I found the key to the universe in the engine of an old parked car. I mean, doesn't that explain most of the rest of his music from born to run to racing in the street to like half the songs on, uh, on the river. Uh, it, that's, it's basically a skeleton key for his entire lyrical approach, right? In that one song. Month-long vacations in the stratosphere And you know it's really hard to hold your breath Swear I lost everything I ever loved to fear Was the cosmic kid in full costume dress But my feet, they finally took root in the earth But I got me a nice little place somewhere in the stars Well, I swear I found the key to the universe In the age of an old car The other one I guess I really want to single out is for you, the the, the nervous sort of young adolescent energy of that uh, is is striking. And I don't think it was ever performed better than it was on the original album. People like to sort of down on the early version of the E Street Band. They say, oh, Vini Lopez, he didn't really have a great sense of rhythm. He played sloppy drums. And, you know, the drums are kind of sloppy. Mighty Max uh, has a much better sense of strict time than Vini Lopez did. But I like that, 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 that shuffling gait and the way that the, the band attacks a song like For You, which is almost entirely piano driven i don't even know if there's a guitar on that song but you've got that great climax at the end where he's like you know you know so you left to find a better reason than the one we were living for and it's not that nursery mouth that i came back for because mm-hmm. i've broken all your windows and i've rammed through all your doors and who am i to ask you to lick my sores that is drama and for a guy this young on his first time out to be able to summon that level of drama in these songs, despite the failures of some of the other experiments on this record, it's hugely impressive, and you understand why critics were all agog at him, even though some of them were a little bit jaded. They're like, oh, he just sounds like Van Morrison. But no, you can understand why there was a lot of critical noise about this guy right out of the, right out of the gates. And you can also understand why it wasn't ever going to really make the top 40. We were a bull-dead tiger, just had to hear tune to the roar of some metal-tempered engine on an alien distant shore. So you left to find a better reason than the one we were living for. And it's not that nursery mouth I came back for. It's not the way you're stretched out on the floor. Because I've broken all your windows and I've ran through all your doors. And who am I to ask you to lick my sword? And you should know that. I came for you, you, I came for you Life 
fact, none of Bruce's work, not even Born to Run, was actually that commercially successful. It took him a long time to make it, which is, I guess, kind of the story of the next two albums. The Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle is the uh, next album. It was released, what, the same year, I think. The so, hey, first and last time you'll ever accuse Bruce Springsteen of rushing it, right? right. <laughs> it was uh, recorded in the summer of 73, out in November of, of 73. And look, there's a, there's a large jump uh, from uh, the first album to the second album. I, uh, Jeff adores this album with, with very good reason. Uh, one of the things that I, I take away, this actually may have been, well, it was the second. The, the first uh, album I, I got from Bruce Springsteen um, was the live, 7585, from my, from my library. But I did request uh, The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle at one point because I, I wanted to dub uh, Rosalita onto one of my cassettes, you know, from a CD. Because that is a song that I had known and liked an awful lot. But I, I didn't listen to the rest of the album. I just grabbed it for the one song. So again, now going back and listening, when... These bands that I love that uh, have the Bruce Springsteen-influenced description, the the moniker thrown at them, this is the album that largely they're talking about, I'm I'm realizing now. Uh, A band like uh, Marath from uh, out of Philadelphia, who I I really love. Uh, You know, they were telling their stories of Philadelphia in the way that Springsteen was telling his stories of the Jersey Shore on the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle, painting these these pictures, uh, naming these characters. Uh, that's what they were doing. Uh, another band like The Hold Steady, uh, who has this this batch of characters and locations, uh, largely around Minneapolis. Uh, this is this is the kind of album, the kind of Bruce album that they're emulating or at least influenced by, and and, and so I, I see that here. So many of these songs here have the very cinematic structure. Uh, again painting a picture, describing the scene, trying to take you right on the, the boardwalk of the, of the Jersey Shore and, and name-dropping these characters in different places. And the thing about The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle, uh, if you're new to it, is is its length, and not the length of the album, but the length of the songs. There's seven songs, and I don't think any of them are less than five minutes. There are a few that are past eight or nine minutes. But no, this is not, this is not jamming or, you know, free-form noodling. Um, one of the real strengths, uh, I think, of Springsteen that shows on the album is how, how carefully constructed these multi-part, you know, epic-type songs are. Um, they're, they're just really well thought out and, and put together. I mean, a song like... Uh, it's progressive rock, if yeah, you think about respect, it. Like, I mean, it's not like... It's, when you think well, of progressive rock, you think of Yes and Genesis. Right. But, but these structures are progressive. I mean, it, it's, it's very much like long suites assembled in different pieces, recapitulations and things like that. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it could be part of the genre. The, the first time I heard Kitty's Back, I thought, well, yes, this is exactly why Jeff loves this Bruce Springsteen era so much, because it reminded me of uh, just a terrible, terribly lot of progressive rock. Uh, not, not, not in the bad way in any way, but just, uh, oh, yeah, this... Uh, this sort of reminds me of things that, that Jeff would like. Um, I mean, it's all like Rosalita, which, uh, which again, is one of those songs. It might be the Bruce Springsteen song I've heard more often than, than all others. But, how, how, you know, how do you describe that song to someone who's never heard it before? I mean, it's slow and it's fast and there's verses all over the place. And of how do we even excerpt it? I'm just like right. sparing. Like, wait, 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 there's like six different parts. You can yeah, there's, the, there's a couple of false endings and there's a sax solo and this great coda on the back end. Uh, I mean, 
but but all of it is put together in such a way to to maintain that momentum from start to finish and still have this story told of a, a you know girlfriend's parents who don't approve of Bruce Springsteen's rock and roll lifestyle. I, I know your mama she don't like me cause I play in a rock and roll band. Like the E Street shuffle, that, that cacophony of horns that, that kicks it off very funky, that chicken scratch guitar. Um, uh, I don't want to get too deep into some of these tracks because there's only seven, and I know you guys have thoughts. Um, but like um, Incident on 57th Street um, is is one of those songs here that I, I really like. It has a full slate of characters, a, a definite setting, uh, just a beautiful arrangement uh, with piano an organ, that chorus just sort of floats on top of, of the music, uh, this beautiful piano solo to close things up. Um, and, 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 well, anthemic is a, is a phrase, I think, that or a word that will keep coming up at our Bruce Springsteen descriptions and, and, and discussions, but certainly, uh, you know, the chorus, very anthemic on incident on 57th Street. Um, you can see him reaching for these things that he's trying to, Piece together in the way he writes and arranges and puts things together and gets it very right on this album. I'll let Dan go, you know, in depth uh, first, but I just want to start by saying that yes, this is by far to me Bruce Springsteen's greatest album, his greatest achievement. I consider it perfect. And there's the one song on it that people often will criticize, which is Wild Billy's Circus Story. Uh, and the reason they criticize it is it sounds completely alien to everything else on this album. Everything else on this album is like sort of like a funky, urban, prog rock kind of a vibe. And then there's like Wild Billy Circus Story with the oompa, oompa accordions and tubas. And it just seems like, what's going on with this? And it, 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 you know about Springsteen's career, it makes sense because it actually comes from the greetings from Asbury Park era and uh, <clears throat> I believe they actually recorded a version of it for those sessions uh, and so they redid it here he loved to play it he played it live all the time in concert during 1973 and 1974 I like it too it just doesn't belong here given how many great unreleased songs came from this era but the thing I want to praise about this before I let Dan talk about some of the songs is the band this is where the E Street Band really becomes the E Street Band. Uh, this is where they start touring, all right? They didn't really tour. Greetings from Asbury Park was already recorded in October of 1972 before the band had ever really come together as a permanent proposition, a touring proposition. It was with the Wild, the Innocent, the E Street Shuffle that he first started playing almost all of these songs before he recorded them. And so you have, I think, the 
the biggest thing that matters here is the addition of David Sanctius, who was Bruce Springsteen's original pianist. Uh, he would later be replaced by Roy Bitton, um, who, of course, has kind of gone on to be famous, like the E Street Band piano player. But David Sanctius was in this early phase, and what he is just marvelous at is not only a classical touch, which he brings to something a jazzy and classical touch, which he brings to like New York City Serenade, but the funk. This man can play an electric piano like nobody's business, and there's no better example than on Kitty's Back. Scott, you're right. I adore Kitty's Back. I knew it. I love. I knew I it. Lo- I love that instrumental breakdown where all of a sudden Sanctus starts playing and then it go kicks right back into that real descending chorus. you're done listening to that all of a sudden bruce is singing go here she comes here she comes the whole band you just imagine these hooligans saying here she comes and then bruce kicks in Exciting. It's it's everything you would ever want this band to be. It is actually it's funny because everyone talks about the second half of this re- this record, which is perfect in my opinion. But man, the joy of what the live E Street Band experience must have been like to see in person. You hear it on Kitty's back. Now, Dan, please take the reins. Yeah, Kitty's back has almost kind of a busking vibe in that sense. Like, but it's I, I have to say I, I consider this album kind of disappointing. Um, mostly what? because mostly because I think a lot of these songs really do fare a lot better live. Uh, the conspicuous exception of that is E Street Shuffle, which on the record is just fantastic, and they they tried some experiments with it live later on that that don't work quite as well as as how tight it is, and it is really tight on the record. 
Um, Wild Billy Circus Story, I totally get why the music of that is is circus, um, but that song does not work for me at all. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, there, there absolutely are some classics on here. Rosalita, of course, uh, grows even further. Rosalita is the song, I know people talk about Jungle Land, but Rosalita to me is always, that's Clarence's song, right? More than anything else, because just, he just kind of takes that over. Um, but the whole coda where it sort of, you know, it kicks into another gear. Um, Your it, papa uh, says he knows that I don't have any money. <laughs> the whole, again, the gang on the street just starts singing mm-hmm. a mass chorus. Yeah. And, 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 you know, my tires are slashed. And I almost crashed, but the Lord had mercy. I mean, he just kind of drives that whole, it, well, it really is. It's your, you know, you're burning rubber up the Palisades Parkway. That very uh, next, that very next line is the one that's, that always sticks with me as just a fine form of Springsteen songwriting. You know, my, the, the, uh, my machine, she's a dud stuck in the mud somewhere in the swamps of Jersey. That's a great Springsteen line. Well, I mean, how about tell him this is his last chance to get his daughter in a fine romance <laughs> because the record company, Rosie, just gave me a big advance. And the irony, the irony, of course, is that he was actually like already on the outs with Columbia <laughs> Records at that point because his first album had flopped and like they weren't even bothering to promote this one. So there's a little bit of hype there as well. Jack the Rabbit and Whitney Willie, don't you know they're gonna be there? A sloppy soup and big Bruce is, I mean, Bruce is certainly uh, always one of his own best promoters uh, in that sense. I mean, look, I think the, the songs here, a lot of these songs grow tremendously on the road. Kitty's Back is, is particularly in the early years, a staple of the, it, it's jam band song, right? I mean, there are versions of that that run 15, 17 minutes. It, fairly I've got a 23-minute version of that one. Yeah, it goes forever. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, and, and they're all, they're all wonderful. Um you know, I think Fourth uh, of July Asbury Park, Sandy. I just, I do not like the the album version of this at all. I think it, it, it just there's a kind of epic scope that Bruce brings. To, I mean, it's a beautifully written song, a tremendous, wow. uh, you know, evocative melody. But I think Bruce brings a lot more to it on stage uh, than he does in the studio. Incident on a fifty different opinions on political beats. I could yeah, I think, disagree more with what you just said. But anyways, continue. I'm sorry. We're, I'll get back to it when I talk. Yeah, an incident on 57th Street. I think actually my favorite live version of that. And there are some wonderful early ones. There's, there's. I think I found it on on like a Japanese bonus CD to the the box set. But it's it's from the Nassau Coliseum, mm-hmm. uh, one of the Nassau Coliseum shows in December of 1980. Yes, just, yes, yes. That song is so. It's it's West Side Story. I mean, let's face it. It's West Side Story written as a rock rock and roll song. I mean, he changes the 
the story a little bit, but not. That, that's funny because actually, I think Jungle Land is also West Side Story as a rock and roll song. This is a theme he would constantly go back to. So yeah. Yeah, but at least there he moved it across the river. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a little it's a little different. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean both of those songs are are just tremendous live epics, and I think New York Ser- City Serenade. I, I don't love it. Um, it, it is it is a song though that also kind of grows live when he when he can bring a more I don't know orchestral feel to it maybe. Well, I, I I love the fact that we actually have strongly differing opinions about this because I I will then be able to drop clips in to demonstrate why I'm correct and you're wrong. <laughs> uh, I think Sandy is a song, a classic example of a song that that got a lot worse in live performance. I really have. It's always like I have. As you might have guessed, listeners, I have like about a hundred different Springsteen concert bootlegs, and this is a skip track for me almost every single one of them. I feel like it gets plodding. I feel like it gets again. There's this sort of oomp ah oomp ah plod to the chorus when it's played live, but on this, on this version, there's all these beautiful little guitar filigrees, stuff that's probably only possible in the studio where in the stereo you hear like the guitar you know, chord goes in don 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 the way the guitar filigrees wind their way in and out of the, the lyric and it's a much softer more acoustic based kind of a, uh, an approach than it is with the full you know big accordion you know oompa tuba kind of a thing danny federici kind of getting all into his uh his uh hurly girly man kind of a shtick which he, he loved to do with springsteen during the 70s uh i really really prefer the album version of that sandy that waitress i was seeing lost her desire for me I spoke with her last night She said she won't set herself on fire For me anymore She worked that joint under the boardwalk She was always a girl you saw Bobbing down the beach with the radio The kids say last night she was dressed like a star In one of them cheap little seaside bars And I saw her parked with Loverboy out on the Kokomo did you hear the cops finally busted Madame Marie For telling fortunes better than they do For me this boardwalk life's through, babe You oughta quit this scene too I guess the other one is Incident on 57th Street. Now, the thing about this is that it became two different songs. If you hear the early 70s versions of it, where it's just Bruce singing in a piano, and it's either David Sanchez or Roy Bitten or just playing the piano accompaniment, and it's Bruce, there's a solo spotlight, you know, raining down on him on stage, and he's alone at the microphone, and he's singing about Spanish Johnny and Puerto Rican Janie, and it's mesmerizing, but that's not the full band version. The full band version on this album is something that has always stunned me. And it was the moment that I heard this song that I realized that Springsteen was more than just the greatest hits artist that I, you know, I had heard from my dad, you know, watching MTV and seeing Dancing in the Dark and Born in the USA.
it was hearing incident on 57th street those opening piano chords that sound like you know it's the coldest night uh and also the hottest night of the year simultaneously and then that great chorus where he goes puerto rican by the way i've always thought puerto rican janie girl won't you tell me your name uh well her name is puerto rican janie you seem to already know that <laughs> don't you i mean that you know that's janie sleeps and sheets damp with sweat i mean that's her name right so i uh, whatever you know this is the kind of i love i love goofing on like lyrical nitpicks yeah, but yeah, yeah her, her her name is probably mary yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bruce Bruce has a stable of names that he likes to go back to. There's the Marys, there's the Wendy's, there's the Janies. Uh, you know, you, you can't accuse him of, of getting too exotic with the naming conventions. But that chorus is just so wonderful. The big shining organ from Federici. And then, again, that mass chorus. Their drummer, Vini Lopez, the guy who can't keep great time, he's the guy who sings the high parts. The, the beautiful, it sounds like a female's voice. The, that soprano falsetto vocal, you know, good night, it's all right, Janie. That's a guy singing that. And if you hear him doing it live, it's actually just stunning to realize, wait a second, and that, that's coming from their drummer? <laughs> yeah, it is. This album is is great, and it, there are so many reasons that it's my favorite Springsteen album. I think, that, first of all, because it has this sort of progressive feel that it is very much like a Van Morrison goes to New Jersey sign of kind of a thing. Uh, it feels like Springsteen had been listening to a lot of like St. Dominic's Preview. Uh, you know, listen to the Lion in particular. Seems like you know New York City Serenade was deeply inspired by that song, or you know, almost Independence Day. Um, but the other reason is that this is, in a weird way, his most unmediated album of all time. It didn't have the weird, like, stop-start genesis of Greetings from Asbury Park, where he recorded one version of the album, and then the last second he cut a bunch of songs and he redid it. And it certainly had nothing like, you know, the, the horrible, and this is the new theme of Springsteen as we move on to the rest of this decade and the rest of his career, for that matter, where he just spends endless amounts of time slaving away to get the perfect number of songs, the perfect you know, production, the perfect theme, the perfect winnowing of his lyrical conceits. <laughs> this one just felt like a spontaneous evolution. Just boom. Here's a bunch of great fun music, which is why it's actually funny that there's so many great outtakes from this album. This album has stuff like Zero and Blind Terry, 
which is a, a song that I think should have been included on the album. Which is, you know, again, another one of these sort of shaggy dog stories about, like, you know, gang wars, another you know, West Side Story thing. The Skulls met the Pythons, and here are these two lovers, Zero and Blind Terry. They run away, but Zero, or does it Terry's dad, you know, sent some troopers to go bring her back, because Zero, of course, he's, you know, a bad egg. It's that kind of thing. You know, you, you, you don't want to take it too seriously. Now, some folks say Zero and Terry got away. Others said they were caught and brought back. I still am young pilgrims to this day. Go to that spot way down by the railroad track. Where the troopers met the pilot. Old timers cry on a hot August night. If you look hard enough, if you try. Your kids, Zero and Terry, and all the Pythons We'll just hike in the streets up in the sky We'll just walk and just hike in the streets up in the sky Just hike in the streets up in the sky But the romance is beautiful. The vocals are beautiful. The, the the wonderful organ playing is beautiful on it. There's songs like that, and then there's like Seaside Bar Song. Seaside Bar Song, which I know Dan doesn't like, but Dan is wrong. That I like it. No, no, no. I love, no, I love Seaside Bar Song. Well, okay. Well, why were you giving me stick about it when we were talking about it via email? What is your what is your your argument that it doesn't belong on an album like this? No, I think I think Seaside Bar Song belonged on Born to Run. I think it sounds much more like Born to Run. I think it would have sounded out of place on this album. Uh, yeah, but no, a Seaside Bar Song is is glorious. It's like, it, it would sound perfectly if you stuck it between Born to Run and Night or something. It, it, it's it's that kind of song. It's looser, but it's. It's it's very much in that kind of anthemic guitar chord sound that that Born to Run has. The highway is alive tonight, so baby, do not be frightened. There's something about a pretty girl on a sweet summer night that gets this boy excited. Radio man finally understands and plays you something you can move to. You lean back easy, cut loose, you drive by, your girl leans over, says. I mean, so like, 
this is the thing I want to say to people who enjoy this album and say, like, well, well, why isn't there more Bruce Springsteen music like this? Well, there is actually more Bruce Springsteen music out there like this. It's just not on any of his albums, with the exception, I'd say, of Jungle Land and maybe Backstreets. Those from, from the next album, those still have like a trace of this sort of epic prog era, semi-prog era Springsteen. But you can find that music on uh, you know, boxed sets like Tracks. Where you have like Santa Ana, Seaside Bar Song, Bishop Dan Zero, and Blind Terry, and Thundercrack, which was his big stage closing number all throughout this year when he was recording Wildly Innocent. Um, or you can go like, uh, you know, listen to like live bootlegs from 73 and 74. There's a, a, a song that I just want to mention briefly because I think it really is kind of a key transition piece, something that he was playing during this era called Tokyo and the band played. It was originally called Tokyo and then it sort of began to mutate. You know, I have performances of it dating from different eras and it kind of grew and it grew and it grew each time it was played by the end of it in like mid 74 it was called and the band played and it's just one of these great again woolly kind of progressive like you know things where like all these different bits and bots are strung together and it just tells a story of you know bored people hanging around a new jersey gas station (laughs) on a summer night and it works beautifully. You know, they're just listening to the radio and, like, you know, making fun of themselves and, you know, like, you know, interacting with the customers and dreaming. And that's what Bruce Springsteen's entire kind of persona was about, was selling the romance of the quotidian and making it into something magical. I really love that song. And I've just, I just love this era of Springsteen so much. And there's something that's going to be sacrificed immensely when we get into the, the next album, which, of course, is the beginning of Big Bruce. Bruce Springsteen that basically everybody already knows. First of all, you know, I think one of the, the kind of great inside jokes to, um, you know, in, in, in rock is the fact that I think Zero on Blind Terry is probably as much as anything um, the song that Bob Dylan is is building his first parody around when he gets around to doing Tweeter, Tweeter and, the Monkey. and the Monkey Man. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, which which is which is itself pretty funny because it's it's Dylan, you know, Dylan doing essentially a parody of an unreleased like like track that that you know, three quarters of the audience hasn't heard. Um, the fever is another one from yeah. this, 
this era that is just uh, and and the, the there's a there's an official release of that on 18 tracks uh which is uh, which is wonderful and it's you know i mean the the southside johnny version is really good it's the first of, of many songs that bruce gives away that are that are well handled by other people i think he um, also gave it to the pointer sisters too right yeah i'm not sure yeah i think he may have but uh I, i'm admittedly more familiar with the southside johnny version but but the bruce version is the best version of that i mean it's it, it really is it, it just has this kind of uh, intensity hmm. um and you know i think people people listen for that in like a song like i'm on fire that you get later on and i, I don't think it does it as well as the fever does kind of the same concept i just to yes the fever is one people should hear this leisurely paced uh song that slowly gains momentum the guy goes home turns on the tv can't concentrate he's got the fever uh, for his girl and then you've got the band uh, on the backing vocals. You know, he's got the fever. Oh, he's got the fever. Uh, Clarence Clemens has a, a just a sultry sax solo. Uh, and also, he gets that one little great line where he's like, "He's got yes. the fever for a girl." <laughs> you know, that big basso profundo that he sings in. I love that. That's part. definitely one people should check out. Because you were my sun in the morning, you were my moon at night. When I Makes me feel alright. When other days go longer, the love just grows stronger. Babe. My fever gets so bad at night. I got the fever for the girl. He's got the Thing, by the way that you see one of the one of the things you see a lot and, and i think we'll probably talk about this in a bit with some of the born to run songs too is that you know bruce bruce has this kind of modular thing where he takes pieces of lyrics and pieces of music and if he doesn't release the song yes he'll he'll scavenge them for mm-hmm. later on all I over the place one, yeah and one of the really interesting ones of that actually is in seaside bar song where he has the line about the highway is alive tonight and it's it's so full of like promise and and youthful energy he says well the highway is alive tonight so baby do not be frightened and he reuses that line in tom joe in the 90s and it's totally totally different it's, it's the highway is alive tonight nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes <laughs> and it, it's such a he's such a flip of that he does that actually on the next album too and, and this is i guess what we have to come to for those who aren't aware the next album is a little album you may have heard of it's called born to run but the genesis of Born to Run is kind of one of the most famously uh, tortured stories in all of rock music. You know, he'd started uh, Born to Run. The actual song itself had already been recorded and mixed, done by like, mid-1974. So, like, you know, maybe just a couple of months after Wild the Innocent had actually even been released, they were still touring it. And he'd already had that one. He'd written so many of the other songs. He had Jungle Land down in an early form. He had She's the One. He had, uh, you know, early versions of Thunder Road 
pottering around in his demo bin, mm-hmm. uh, he could not find a way to record this album to his satisfaction. He wasn't happy at all with the sound, the production sound that he was getting out of 914 Studios. Uh, he wasn't happy with the production that his manager, Mike Appel, was giving him. He wasn't happy with his own ability to refine his conceits. There's, if you hear, there's like early versions of Jungle Land from like July of 74 out there. Uh, and they're like 15 minute long. There's like a little jazzy breakdown in the middle. A lot of repeated words, verses. You know, it, it's an interesting thing to listen to, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work anything like the final version does. And he just didn't seem to be able to, to bring it in for a landing. He, he had already failed his first two albums. And the record company was basically going to dump him after this all right he had one more chance to do it and then columbia was just gonna you know cash in their chips and say all right well whatever you know this this new dylan thing it didn't pay off we should probably stop investing in people who call themselves the new dylan um <laughs> so he had to get it right and he was driven by it you know he's like this is too good I, I i you know this band is too good we have too much talent i don't want this to be wasted so he drove himself insane trying to make sure that the album that he would release would be perfect. And in fact, you know, this would be the theme. He'd drive himself insane doing this on Darkness on the Edge of Town, doing it on the river, doing it on Born in the USA. Um, and eventually what he did is he brought in outside help, a music critic by the name of John Landau. He is either, to your estimation, and this is I'd be interested in hearing Dan's opinion on this, he's either a hero of the story or he's a villain of this story. Because there are a lot of people, and I might even count myself among them, who say that what John Landau's ultimate influence on Bruce Springsteen uh, was not the best in terms of what I appreciated about Springsteen. But what Landau did is he saw him famously at uh, it was Harvard, it was in Cambridge, and, and Springsteen was playing in like May of '74, and he just gave you know one of those classic, typical 1974 era blow the doors off performances. And Landau wrote some of the most famous words of all rock criticism. He said, I have seen the future of rock and roll music and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And then what do you do after you write something like that promoting an artist? You immediately become their producer and manager, (laughs) which is what Landau did. And it wasn't like he was trying to promote himself into that role, to be fair. Springsteen came to him and asked him for help because Born to Run as an album wasn't coming together. And what they finally did, in fact, everything that actually made it onto the album except the title track was really not only not fully recorded until, I don't know, probably March or April of 1975. But the final result is Born to Run. Some people consider it one of the few truly perfect albums in the history of all rock and roll music. Some people are a little bit tired of it. Some people have hated it with an abiding passion all of their lives. I really don't understand why people feel that way about Born to Run. But I will say this, that I guess I'm kind of more in the I've heard – I've heard it too much. I've heard it too often that it doesn't thrill me the way it used to with the exception of, you know, kind of some of the more obvious songs. Before I get to those, what are you guys thoughts on the the big white whale and the Bruce Springsteen discography?
I mean, this is and and Born to Run itself. I think he spent months and months just making that song. There are like seven alternate mixes of it, and you can hear like they put singing girls in the background, like big strings, like weird horns. Like they tried everything they could conceivably think of. So, yeah, yeah, and it, it's funny because I think Max Weinberg has said that that even to this day he can't play the drums on it exactly the way it is on the on the record, wait, so, which is Max, weird. Max and Roy come in after Born to Run and before the rest of the album is put to bed. It's just Why weird. It's weird? weird because I always think. I, I knew uh, not this week, but recently uh, that, that it's not Weinberg on the album version. But in my head, I always picture Weinberg like like this is a prototypical Max Weinberg song, the way that this, you know, that kick drum just pounds on Born to Run. And he, he didn't even play on the album version. It's, uh, nope, that's Boom Ernest Carter. Boom Carter, my yeah. friend. Yeah. And, and but and Bruce famously said that, that, you know, he wanted this album to be the greatest rock and roll record ever recorded. And. Whether or not you think he achieved that, I think he got pretty close to the pin. I think that, you know, your your greatest albums of all time discussion is is always going to have Born to Run in the picture. Um, but this album sounds like an album that wanted to be the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Like the ambition just oozes off everything on this album. Um, and, 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 you know, and that is that's something that you don't really hear, I think, ever again in Bruce. But um, but it, it's just there's so much. There's so much he feel. It feels like he's trying to say and trying to do musically as well as lyrically. I mean, I think we, you know, we talk a lot about Bruce's Bruce's lyrics, and 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 I'll get to that in a minute. But um, you know, it, it, the lyrics and the live performances, as much as those are great things, I think without Bruce's ability as a writer of music, um, you know, that's the foundation it all it all rests on. Um, I mean, Born to Run. Yeah, what else? What else can you say about that song? It is that the great adrenaline shot. It is that that epic guitar tone. Um, you know, Thunder Road. Look, I, I I don't know that there has ever been a better opening to a song hmm. lyrically. Um, and this is actually one of these songs that I, I kind of you know when I was like fourteen and really into Born in the U.S. I didn't really get Thunder Road. I was probably like seventeen or eighteen before it really really registered with me, but. I mean, just that opening, you know, screen door slams, Mary's dress waves like a vision. She dances across the porch as the radio plays. Just that opening. I mean, in in so few words, and I think we'll probably talk in a minute about how he got it down to those few words. But, you know, that's such a concise sketch that is such an indelible picture. Bruce just gets through that that opening and you are right there. Right. You were right there. You can see, particularly if you grew up in the part of the country that I did in the time period I did, you know, you can see what the porch looks like. You can picture, you know, Mary twirling on the on the porch. It, it's just <laughs> it grabs you right there. And then, you know, and then Bruce backs out. Right. He now he's he's sketched you the picture of her. He sketched you the picture of the house. Now, here's he. He's, you know, he's watching across the street. He's got his car running. Um, and. And he's right in that space in between. He's not the creepy guy who can't have this woman and is looking at her. And he's not the guy who has her. But he's he's the young man who knows that he might maybe have this woman. He might maybe be able to get her in his car and get her to go with him. And he, and he you know, it just carries so much of that emotional freight right there uh, in the opening of that song. The screen door slams, Mary's dress waves. Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely 
Hey, that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again I just can't face myself alone again Don't run back inside, darling You know just what I'm here for So you're scared and you're thinking that maybe Some of the other things on this on this record, um, I mean, Tenth Avenue Freeze Out is one that I think we, um, you know, it's and and this is where he brings in Steve Van Zandt to arrange the horns, uh, and and he, he had been in and out, I think, of the band. Yeah, Van Zandt had been a friend of his, you know, ever since they were like the late '60s, and he'd actually been in like early Bruce Springsteen bands. But this is when he joins the band full time, and he and he starts playing with them live, and then you have two guitars, and that of course changes a lot of the way the E Street Band presents its music. And I think no greater, you know, except no greater example of that than this song. Yeah, and it's 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 if you know the album version, which is still a staple on classic rock radio, if you know like the the later live versions that are on the box set and, and other places. It's a wonderful song, but boy, you have not heard 10th Avenue freeze out until you've heard the live versions that they did between about 75 and 78. Uh, it's just got, it's got a, uh, you know, it's a much faster tempo, uh, the piano and, and, you know, the guitar, particularly at the, the start of the, uh, song, it really just, it, it has this, this kind of funky, um, hot tempo to it. It, it comes in hot and it keeps you up, uh, you know, and, and any, I mean, you know, any version of that that you hear from that era is just, it, when I first started hearing those versions, it blew me away. I'd been listening to this song for years and I was just like, wow, this is a completely different song. I mean, we could talk about any one of the songs on this, uh, uh, but the, the other one that, that I always identify with one member of the band is Backstreets, which is very much Danny Federici's song, even though the piano drives the melody. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's that whole, the, the, the really epic feel that this song has. 
just comes from from the keyboards and the the way the keyboards just soar on this. And and you listen to particularly you listen to, I mean the the studio version gets it, but you listen to the live versions too. Again from the the mid to late seventies in particular, uh, and it's just it, it it is just almost this anthem chorus of each of these instruments all around you. Uh, and it, it just, you know, it takes this this really lyrically kind of very small song about these guys just kind of hanging out on the streets, right, and turns it into an epic. I mean, the thing you need to understand about Born to Run, I think, uh, you, the listener, who may not be a Springsteen obsessive, is that this is where the E Street Band takes its final form. All right, this is where David Sanchez leaves the band for a solo career, um, and, and uh Vina Lopez had gotten fired for getting into a fight with Mike Capel's brother on the road. <laughs> and then they got Boom Carter and he does Born to Run. But then they get a new guy, uh, Mighty Max, Max Weinberg, who still, I believe, is the house drummer for Conan O'Brien, I believe. I um, think he, he left, he left yeah. that gig after the Tonight Show for right. a year. When, was, when they were cutting some costs. See, that, that's what I get for not paying enough attention to TV over the last decade. But, you know, you guys know who Max Weinberg is, all right? He's, he's the drummer for the E Street Band. He comes in on this album. And the addition of Roy Bitten in particular mm-hmm. kind of creates the classic. The fusion of Bitten and Federici are, is the classic E Street Band sound. You have, like, Federici playing those, you know, Celestes, you know, like the high sort of, like, glockenspiel, xylophone-sounding, you know, notes. And then you have the, that big sheets of sound approach that Roy Bitten brings to everything. You know, on Backstreets is a classic example of it. <laughs> But even on Thunder Road, and Thunder Road is a song about which so much has already been said and so little can really be added to that I'm just going to have to try to add one more thing, which is this, uh, is that there was so much wonderful poetry that came from this song that Springsteen actually had to like eliminate some of it to get it all into one track. There are early versions of this song that there's a great, a very famous live performance that he gives of it back when it was still called wings for wheels uh, at the main point, February of 1975. So this is before it would have been recorded where like there are alternate lyrics that are just as good as anything that actually made it onto the record. Like, uh, you know, it says, you know, roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair. It's the rush. It's like the rushing touch of them dirty wings the highway angels wear. Well, tonight we're going to find out how that feels. I'm going to trade in your wings for wheels. That's a beautiful set of couplets, and it didn't make it into the final song, which is why the song is no longer called Wings for Wheels. It's called Thunder Road. I'm gonna 
writing so much good music that he couldn't even figure out where to put it. I think the biggest disappointment on this album in that respect for me is She's the One. On this album, there are two songs that I'd say just sort of sit there inertly and don't do much. One of them is Night. Night has just always been sort of the weak sister on Born to Run. It's not a bad song. It's just like whatever. It's like two and a half minutes of, uh, you know, sort of frenetic noise. Uh, but then there's She's the One. She's the One could have been so much better than it was. And if you heard those early versions of it where it's about twice as long and there's extra verses and there's also like we talked about pilfering lyrics, you know, the way he would steal a lyric from an unused track and then go use it on something else. As it turns out, you listen to the early live version of it and you realize that like half of it is Backstreets, <laughs> a song that hadn't been written yet. You know, like, you know, I hated you. I hated him when he went away all that stuff that's originally from she's the one than it does in Backstreets, which have always considered to maybe be the most bloated, like famous, beloved Bruce Springsteen epic of them all. I think that Born to Run, you know, Scott, I want you to say something new about Born to Run because nobody else, you know, I certainly can't. And, you know, we really need to give it its due. But I will say this, that the most underrated track on, on this album is uh, it's got to be Meeting Across the River. Just the least performed song on all of Born to Run, I think, he, you know, until like this sort of like neo nostalgia era, you know, where Bruce is just bringing out all the old hits because all of his boomer fans want to see him play the classic albums front to back and stuff like that. Uh, he didn't play it more than like, you know, like 15, 16 times throughout the entirety of the 70s. But man, that is an amazing, moody, uh, atmospheric piece of music. It's about a drug deal that you know is going to go bad. Doesn't say it, 
Nobody is saying it's going bad, but it's obvious that these people are in over their heads. You know, hey, you know, stick this in your stick this in your pocket. It'll look like you've got a friend. You know, all we need to do is make this big score, and then we're going to be great. We're going to have it made. And you just know that no, these guys are going to end up in the East River hmm. by the end of the night. It's going to be a really sad ending, and it's all implied. It's implied by that wonderful piano, that piano melody, which just sounds like you know. There's like it's a it's a dusty late 2 a.m. night. It's hot. There's like one street light that's on, and it's casting like a really kind of like a a, a dim, tepid, yellowy shat you know light onto the ground, and that's the only thing you can see for like you know a hundred yards. And that's where the deal is going to go down, and that's where it's all going to go wrong. But Jerry says she's going to walk because she found I took the radio in hot day. But any man, she don't understand that two grand's practically sitting here in my pocket. Tonight's gonna be everything that I said. And when I walk through that door, I'm just gonna throw that money on the bed. She'll see this time I wasn't just talking. Then I'm gonna go out walking. I love that song, and I think that song is so much better than the big epic that ends the album, which is Jungle Land, which, as I pointed out earlier, now that's West Side Story and song. There is literally a line in Jungle Land where, what does he say? is the hungry and the hunted explode into rock and roll bands where I, and face off against each other out in the streets down in Jungle Land, and all I can just do is imagine the sharks and the jets snapping their fingers and going, be cool, <laughs> be cool. Be cool. And listen, I like rock theatrics, okay? I, I'm not going to pretend that I don't. But it's, it's, it's so kind of over the top. It's, it's, the, it's the point where Bruce almost threatens to disappear up his own posterior in terms of, like, the rock theatricality. And I'm just I'm, – I'm, you can't see me, but I'm throwing out jazz hands here. <laughs> you know? uh, it's, it's, it's the one moment where it almost gets a little bit silly. But it is, of course, it's still a beautiful song. And, and who can argue with the way that it ends? Outside the streets on fire and a real death walls Between what's flesh and what's fantasy
I, I, I don't know that I can say anything to about Born to Run, I'm sorry, but I'll say something very obvious, which is uh, the E Street Band is very good. Um, and, and and this is where, as Jeff mentioned, they they come together. This is the band that's that sounds so full on "Born to Run," the title track. I mean, all those pieces come together. Uh, Clarence Clemens' horn sort of fattens the sound where it's needed. The the guitar tone is perfect uh, throughout. Uh, it, it's a great song. You guys have said so much about the other ones that I, I love here. Thunder Road, Jeff, Jeff talked a lot about the lyrics to Thunder Road. For me, Thunder Road, too, is about those little those little moments in, in the course of the song. You know, the first piano, the, the first guitar peels, uh, the sax solo, uh, the, the, the final lyric, it's a town full of losers I'm pulling out here to win. Uh, the, the way the drums crash into the chorus, the glockenspiel, the, all these little moments that we know how many months uh, Springsteen took to get exactly right certainly pay off on Thunder Road. 10th Avenue Freeze Out is one of the greatest openings to any song ever. That that horn chart, uh, those guitar licks into the snare drum roll and the piano. It's a fantastic uh, intro and you can hear I'm telling you, you can hear Springsteen smiling when he when he says you know, the big man joined the band. You can just hear that little smile uh, in the corner of his mouth as he as he has that lyric. Uh, Backstreets is great. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say this, and I know I'm going to have the wrath of Springsteen fans on me. That's that's all right. Jungle Land is the one of these big, big, epic Springsteen songs that I've not been able to connect with during the course of listening to uh, the, these albums. Uh, Backstreets, yes. Uh, the ones from the last album, yeah. Uh, Jungle Land, I, I don't know if I have a specific reason, I, I, but it has not hit me the way that I expected it to, given uh, the the sort of mythical status it has. It's, it's a, every top ten list of Springsteen songs, it's somewhere there. Uh, but Jungle Land never quite hit me in that way, at least in these couple of weeks that I've been listening to, uh, to, uh, to Born to Run, uh, the, the full album. This is... I don't know it's going to make my, my two albums at the end of the episode, but as Dan said, this is absolutely, you know, Springsteen's grasp of creating the the rock and roll album, and he got pretty darn close if he didn't get it all the way. Um, and, and, you know, thematically, as you go from the last album, which is a lot of, you know, these possibilities, what might happen on the Jersey Shore and what's what's ahead Born to Run, the album is sort of acknowledging that, you know, not all possibilities are 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 out there. Roads are closed, uh, theoretically, uh, or and perhaps figuratively. Uh, but but maybe just maybe you can get out. You know, you can pull out to win. You you, you know, you can get away from uh, the town as described on Born to Run or the Death Trap, uh, Suicide Rap. You, you, maybe you can be the person to get out, uh, and that's sort of the the theme that pushes Born to Run forward. Hey, I just want to point out. Uh, you know, Born to Run, uh, the song, which is probably like the, the ultimate, the most iconic song Bruce Springsteen will ever write, one of the greatest rock singles of the 1970s, didn't even make it into the top 20. Not even the top 20. It didn't <laughs> get that high. You know, like, there was like, you know, a, a appalling disco stuff that was like hitting number one in 1975, and, and Born to Run was just lurking outside of the top 20, and I'm sorry, you can think that Bruce Springsteen is overrated, but that's just a load of horse shit right there. <laughs> Oh, boy. 
yeah, that, 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 that is seriously wrong. One other thing I want to note here, too, is that, you know, and, and you see this very directly in the change from Wings to Wheels to Thunder Road, is that you do see um, and, and the, the, the almost self-parodic nature of Jungle Land is, is part of that. This is a much more earnest album and a lot less kind of tongue-in-cheeky and, and shaggy-doggy than maybe some of the earlier Bruce. Uh, and one of the things you see in that, there, there's a line in uh, in Wings for Wheels where, where he, he says, you know, now the season's over, I feel it getting cold. I wish I could take you to some sandy beach where we'd never grow old. Ah, but baby, you know, that's just jive. But tonight's fucked <laughs> and open and I'm alive. Like, there's still that sense that, like, I, maybe I'm kind of putting you on here with all of this. And that that is gone. Again, I think Wings for Wheels is a wonderful song. I think Thunder Road is a better song. But, you know, there are some things that get lost in the translation. Now the season's over And I feel it getting cold I wish I could take you To some sandy beach Where we'd never go Oh, but baby, you know that's just jive But tonight's busting open And I'm alive This 442's gonna overheat Make up your mind, girl I gotta get her back out on the street I know you're lonely like me You also don't fake it Yeah, maybe I can't lay the stars at your feet But I got this old car And she's pretty tough to beat There's plenty of room in my front seat Oh, if you think you can make it That's as good a way to take us to what the next album was going to be than, than I could even hope for because Bruce Springsteen comes out with this wonderful album. Gets to number three in the charts, the album itself. Um, huge. He's on the cover of Time and Newsweek simultaneously. Think about that. This is back when Time and Newsweek were like big deals. <laughs> they basically drove media coverage in the United States. If, they were on, if, you were on, if you were on the cover of those magazines, you were what people were thinking about. He was on the cover of both in the same week, which actually probably makes me think that there were a lot of angry editors at both magazines because they're like, oh man, they're stealing our thunder, right? <laughs> like, like, which one are we going to get? It took him three years to put out a follow-up album to this. And why is that? Well, there's a, there's a whole backstory behind that. And in fact, it's a backstory that has filled up not only you know countless books, but also the dockets of many a court uh, in New York and New Jersey. Uh, this is when he finally made a break with his manager, Mike Appel. Uh, and he said, I, I, don't, I don't want you to produce me or manage me anymore. I don't feel like you've given me a good deal. I don't feel like you did a good job with my music. I want to go with John Landau instead. And this is the point where John Landau ceases to be a music critic and becomes a full-time producer. Uh, and uh, that, of course, leads Mike Appel to file a bunch of lawsuits for breach of contract. There's a lot of horrible, bad blood about this. He, Springsteen tours in 1976 – no, 75, 76, 77, nonstop, basically. He's on the road. Uh, and, of course, this is sort of his lost era. They've only just recently started releasing a few, like, soundboard recordings from this. They're all in his vaults, I imagine. Um, and it's only in 1978 that he finally emerges with uh, a new album. And the name of that album couldn't be more fitting. It's called Darkness on the Edge of Town. 
There's no more of that joking around in this album. There's no more of that goofing around. There's no more kidding, kidding on the square. There's none of that. What there is is a bunch of very serious, very angry, and I would say almost laser-focused thematically uh, songs about broken dreams Mm -hmm. and broken lives and, you know, people who are going to try. They might make it. They might fail. We don't know. And, you know, ominous things lurking in the shadows of the night and in darkened corners of rooms. Uh, This is an album that I think a lot of Bruce Springsteen fans would claim is actually their favorite album. This is the one that I think like the really hardcore Springsteen people love, especially I think because the tour that attended this album in 78 when he finally got it released uh, was just, you know, rapturous stuff there's just there's a lot of great concert recordings out there some officially released at this point it's amazing and like you're not going to go wrong go listening to a, a 1978 era bruce springsteen live concert Cleveland, how you doing? are you ready to shake them summertime blues This is the one where the old Bruce, the fun, scruffy, you know, you know, bunch of guys hanging out on the corner, Bruce Springsteen of Jersey, is gone. And now we have more like, I guess, what would be his, his persona, you know, moving forward, which I, which I think is, is sort of, I characterize as sort of Midwestern heartland Americana Bruce. This is where that begins. Yeah, and, and, and Darkness on the Edge of Town to me is the album that, and Jeff alluded to this, it's the album that really defines whether you're a Springsteen fan. Cause like there's lots of people out there who love born to run born in the USA, you know, who are not Springsteen fans. Right. And at the other end of the scale, Bruce has a bunch of albums that some people love and some people don't. Right. But if you, if you love darkness, that's, you know, you get Bruce, you get at least sort of what Bruce's, the bulk of Bruce's career has been about. Um, one part of this, Jeff asked about John Landau's influence. I mean, honestly, a, Part of this album is this is when Bruce starts reading books, right? I mean, Bruce is he has this very kind of literate touch as a writer, but you know, he's also this kind of guy from from the Jersey Shore who didn't pay much attention in school and uh, bummed around and and you know didn't have hadn't traveled the world much or anything, and he didn't know a lot of things, and so he starts diving into uh, you know he's he's doing more reading, he's sort of he's he's growing up and and. I think uh, I think there was some critic I, I I read who said that the the worst thing that John Landau ever did to Bruce Springsteen was give him a bunch of John Steinbeck. <laughs> yeah, Steinbeck and like Flannery O'Connor and 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 you know and 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 it's not long after this you start seeing political Bruce who makes his debut with the No Nukes concert in '79. But um, the and the tour to this album is I I think you know a Bruce in '75 is great, but I think it 
first in the band in 78 is the absolute peak of them as a touring as a touring act and there's so many high points i think the passaic shows are probably the most famous of those but um there's a show in la that they that they um took like half the half the show and put it on the box set um but uh this album you know the there's a couple things you start seeing here. Adam Raised a Cane is one of the ones that not a not a song I'm a big fan of, but um, that that really debuts and you see it more implicitly elsewhere. This is the beginning of where you start seeing a lot of really kind of biblical stuff from Bruce, and and unsurprisingly he starts with the Old Testament. Um, you know his he has this strain that runs throughout his songwriting of that you are pursued by your sins yeah. and and it's a very actually weirdly socially conservative thing because it's he, he over and over again he comes back to the idea that the consequences of your actions and the consequences of your parents actions will hound you and and you will never ever get away from it. Yeah. um you know the two sort of super highlights of this album uh badlands and the promised land which have been you know if you have been to a bruce concert at any any time in the last you know 30 odd years badlands is really that is the kind of emotional highlight of the show um it's it's the most sort of explosive uh of all of his songs live it is the song that you know if i was a major league baseball player that'd be my walk-up music is badlands <laughs> you know, that, that, that with the, the piano that just bangs away at the beginning version of this is much better than the one on the album but the one on the album has its its charms and i think those two songs together really they really get at bruce's core philosophy that we, mm-hmm. that we read his writing that you know the world is hard and life is hard and it's unfair and and there's all of this kind of darkness in human nature you know poor man want to be rich rich man want to be king king ain't satisfied till he rules everything and yet there is this unshakable, unbreakable optimism that says, you know what, like as bad as life is, it's important to believe in the big things and care about the big things. It's important to embrace adulthood and manhood and faith and stand your ground. And it's, it's important and it ain't, it ain't no sin to be glad that you're alive, which is this exactly. great line. Yeah, that it, it's important to enjoy life. And he's got this, you know, he's got the, the quartet in there about, you know, believe in the in the love and the faith 
faith and, and, and you know, and in the promised land, he talks about, you know, the, uh, you know, Twister to blow everything down that ain't got the faith to stand its ground. So it, those two songs together, um, you know, really knit together a, a sense of who and what Bruce is about and will be about for the entire rest of his career. And there's a lot of other great music on here, too. And I, I think that we're going to get into shortly the, the stuff that, that didn't make the cut. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say this, that I guess I, I qualify as a Bruce fan. Well, I, I was probably not in doubt given how much I've mentioned all the various bootlegs and things like that up until this point. But uh, yeah, I think The Arkansas on the Edge of Town is a fantastic album. I think there are flaws in it. Uh, Factory, I know what he's trying to do. With mm-hmm. it. it's, 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 an, it's one of those songs, it's an admirable song. It almost feels like one of those... You know, like uh, sort of so dutiful socialist realist novels, where like, yes, the work—it's the working life. I'm, I'm, I'm including this because I, I want to say something about what it feels like to be the working man. But you know what? He does it so much better on a song like *The Promised Land*. Anyway, the factory seems unimportant. Um, and I think you know, if you, if I had to argue, I'd say *Streets of Fire*, <clears throat> probably the weakest song yeah. on the entire record. Yep. You know. Uh, was turned into a pretty good 80s movie with the same name. I don't think it was actually using the song <laughs> Streets of Fire, but if you've ever seen that exploitation schlock directed by Walter Hill, Streets of Fire, check it out. It's good. I, I like that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, the darkness on this album is I've always found very mesmerizing. There are no anthems on this. Badlands, of course, is the anthem. The Promised Land, though, I don't think of that as an anthem. I think of that as, as probably his most profoundly moving, you know, character sketch. It was that that I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where Waynesboro County is. It doesn't exist. He made it up, right? But that opening line where it's like, I'm, I'm on a rattlesnake speedway in the Utah desert. I pick up my money, head back into town, driving across the Waynesboro County line. I got the radio on, and I'm just killing time, working all day in my daddy's garage. But that wonderful sketch turns into something else where he says like, you know, I, you know, the dogs are howling on the street, but you know, I'm not a boy, I'm a man and I believe in a promised land and I'm going to take that moment into my hands. That's sort of like that optimism that Dan was talking about. Um, there's the, 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 the final verse of that I think is, I would argue maybe the single best lyric that Bruce Springsteen ever wrote. And I think it's sort of, I guess, the most iconic one of his sort of later sort of whatever you want to call it this uh, Steinbeckian period where there's you know there's a dark cloud rising on the desert floor I'm ha- packing my bags I'm heading straight into the storm there's going to be a twister to blow everything down that ain't got the faith to stand its ground and the way he sings blow away the dreams that tear you apart oh god that is uh, that's the, one of the like four or five finest moments of his entire career not just this era but his entire career.
not to steal Jeff's line, but uh, yes, apparently I'm a bigger Bruce Springsteen fan than I thought because Darkness on the Edge of Town is my favorite album from this this decade of, of Springsteen music. I really love this album. Um, and, and part of it is that, that focus. Uh, it's just, you know, there, there, there were a number of songs written that, that weren't on the album, but all that remained were the, were the hardest songs uh, in terms of theme and in terms of um, this, this sort of dark and unrelenting picture that he's trying to paint. Uh, if Born to Run was about this opportunity to get out, um, Darkness on the Edge of Town is what happens when you have no choice but to stay. Uh, how do you manage it? Uh, you go to work and, and, and get ready for Friday nights, perhaps. And how do you live in this place that you always wanted to get out of uh, and, that, and, 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 and find all these seedy sections and things happening around town? That's, that's darkness. Uh, I, I read this Springsteen quote about uh, songs on darkness, which I love. He says, all, all my songs are about people at that moment when they've got to do something. Just do something. Do everything anything and that's how a lot of these songs are set up on darkness um dan said he wasn't a giant fan of adam race to kane but that is the song that grabbed me by the lapels and shook me uh about darkness on the edge of town it's such an intense song and again i had read bruce talk about the production on that song and it's it's a little different than the rest of the album he said i want you know if, if you're if you see a picture of two lovers having a picnic in the park Adam Race to Cain should be a dead body, like the next thing you see, a dead <laughs> body. And that's how Adam Race to Cain should be yeah. produced. And it's very, it's just very intense. And these kind of shouted backing vocals by the E Street Band, the story about this tense relationship between father and son and the way that Adam Race to Cain is just shouted, repeated at the end of the song. Uh, that's the one that really made me take notice of what, of what was happening uh, on this record. <laughs> song like uh like candy's room which is just full of lust and desire and weinberg working the hi-hat on the intro which that explodes uh with uh, we kiss right and then the, the song just explodes uh but just full of okay tension. you know you, my theory about candy's room and this is there's nothing in the lyrics that bears this out scott but i've always felt that it almost it, it's like a representation of a drug trip mm. it feels like like shooting up 
like shooting heroin or something like that. Like, you know, we kiss and then and you're diving deep into the night, diving deep into the light and Candy's eyes. And it's almost like people who dysfunction against all. It's like a Sid and Nancy in a weird way is what I feel like when I think of Candy's room. You know, which is your baby. If you want to be wild, you've got a lot to learn. You know, close your eyes, let them melt, let them burn. It's it's so weird. It's just a song about a man who's basically in love with a hooker or right. a call girl, right? Uh, but of course, she really loves me, even although the the, the, the high priced men give her, you know, fancy gifts. Uh, she really wants me. What a wonderful, wonderful theme for him to pick up on. This is mm-hmm. always one of my dad's favorite songs too, just because I think he he keyed into like the weirdness of it. It's funny we had. Born, born in, born to run, born in the USA, in darkness on the edge of town at home, and uh, whenever we put on darkness, this is the one that he he put on first after we got <laughs> done with Badlands. And I didn't want to read too much into that, Dad. Uh, but yeah, what a great song. We Land, you guys both talked about it's fantastic. It, it, yeah, it's on Jeff's five. It'll be on my five. I love those three consecutive solos. The that very taut, tight. Uh, I think a Van Zant solo, the sax solo, the harmonica solo before the third verse in the song. Uh, just fantastic. The the that intro, that intro piano to prove it all night has been in my head for the better part of a week. That will not go away. Another great song, and then the, the title track, uh, "Darkness on the Edge of Town." Um, wonderful set of lyrics from Springsteen, this this guy who is uh, ready to pay the cost for wanting things that can only be found in darkness at the edge of town. That is, oh, so descriptive. Such a great little couplet. Uh, I love that rolling piano and the verses, that, that second verse, everyone's got a secret, is such a great piece of songwriting. It, it's a wonderful way to, to close uh, the album. But, but I it's mean, a horribly dark way to close it, too. We talked yes. about, like, I lost my money and I lost, lost my, my wife. wife. Those things don't matter much to me now. Yeah. It's like, it's like I'm just I'm going to be out on that hill tonight. And again, it almost feels like it's a sequel to Meeting Across the River. Like, what is he doing out on that hill? You don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it will not end well. Some folks are born into a good life. And other folks
The other thing about this album, too, that, you know, we, you sit down and listen to it today, um, but um, it's also worth noting how totally wildly, you know, particularly after there was, you know, three years of, of people waiting for Bruce to come back with, you know, uh, Born to Run Part 2, and, like, the band go, you know, some of the band goes off and plays on, like, Beatloaf's album, uh, and they, yes. they play on Bowie's album, and, and after that, after this, and, like, Clarence goes and plays with Aretha and, and everything, but um, you know, there's all this waiting for Bruce to come back. And he writes, you know, we, we see this on the Promise Collection. He writes a lot of very poppy songs and everything. But this album is wildly out of step with everything else that's coming out in 1978, right? I mean, and he's beating like, them. He, he's beating his fans, like racing in the streets literally makes the, it, it, it repurposes Martha and the Vandellas yes. dancing in the streets. You know, like you summer's, know, summer's here. here and the time is right for racing in the street, but it's the most defeatist song you'll <laughs> ever hear. Like, yeah, we go, we shut them down, we run them in the streets. Like, yeah, that. But then what is, what's that last part where he's talking about his, like, his girlfriend? There's wrinkles around my baby's eyes and she cries herself to sleep at night. You know, she comes home. When I come home, the house is dark. She was. She sits on the porch in her daddy's house, and all of her pretty dreams are torn. She stares off alone into the night with the eyes of one who hates for just being born. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> darkest as dark. Yet. But now there's wrinkles round my baby's eyes, and she cries herself to sleep at night. When I come home, the house is dark. Just I, baby, did you make it all right? She sits on the porch of her daddy's house, but all her pretty dreams are torn. She stares off alone into the night with the eyes of one who waits for just being. Wash these sins off our hands Tonight, tonight The highway's bright out of our way Mister, you best keep The summer's here and the time is right Racing in the street Yeah, we're not getting the, you know, we, we, I think even without the lawsuit, we would not have gotten the Bruce Springsteen's Disco Phase album. <laughs> no, but like, it's, he's, it's he's, he's, he's for everyone who wanted another Born to Run here, here's Racing in the Street, and it's about everybody who, like, we've wasted our lives, and we sit at home, and we cry ourselves to sleep, and we hate life just for living it. That is the, <laughs> so, and it's, of course, one of the most beautiful things that he ever wrote. There's just glorious instrumental passages in that song. Uh, but, wow, it's, it's a heavy one. And we have, a, a, did you guys want to talk about a little bit about the, the tracks that didn't make it? Yeah, and, I mean, the thing is, the is that Racing in the Street is sort of like a, a mirror to The Promise. Uh, I don't know if that's the one that you were going to discuss, Dan. I can hold off and let you talk first. 
Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's two there's two different strains here, right? Because on the one hand, you have Bruce is writing all of this stuff that is poppy. That is, um, there's a song on tracks called "Give the Girl a Kiss," which mm-hmm. is still very much a holdover from "Born to Run." I think there's another one, "So Young and in Love," which I think actually was from the "Born to Run" sessions, that are still very much in the vein of all these horns, and they're they're great fun songs. Take me now, baby, here's I am. songs i mean you have because the night which he gives away to patty smith the talk to me that he gives away to southside johnny fire that he gives away to the pointer sisters um you know there's a bunch of good ones on on the promise that if you you know you might not have heard before save my love is a wonderful song i think that that one was somewhat heavily re-recorded but uh, dude there's that buddy holly song that's awesome uh, was it like outside looking in it's a total buddy holly steal and like guess what bruce springsteen doing buddy holly tributes I'm in for that. I am oh, yeah. really, really here to hear Bruce Springsteen play Buddy Holly tribute music. It's all over now, the fun we had. And here, you know, these other ones, I mean, Ain't Good Enough For You, uh, Gotta Get That Fit. There's so much, and it's it, it's a totally different vibe, but it's because it's a different vibe that it doesn't make it onto darkness. Right. Um, but the the one that, that goes, I think, in the opposite direction, and uh, Jeff is going to hate me because I think this is the most overrated Springsteen song of all is The Promise. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the version of it that gets released on the, uh, the Promise Sessions is particularly dull um or on 18 tracks i guess it is there it's on, it's on both um there's a long I, recording history that 18 tracks one is like a 1998 solo piano re-recording of it it's not from the darkness era the uh the one that's on the promise two cd set that is from those sessions sorry yeah. to just be the nerd i'm correct <laughs> yeah no and it's it's musically drippy even the even the better versions of it are, are kind of drifting uh lyrically it makes um you know adam raised to cane or, or racing in the streets sound like a sesame street song um i i think i think i dislike it in part because it it is lacking in that even glimmer of hope that you find in 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 you know badlands and the promised land but um but i know jeff uh thinks differently i do feel differently i do not think that it is like the lost masterpiece of Springsteen's career. But for those who are unaware, this is, I would say, it's fair to characterize it as the the great 
most hyped lost outtake of Springsteen's career prior to its ultimate and eventual release up to the point where that when he did that four CD box set tracks, which we've been referring to constantly during the show and, and will again during the next episode, uh, he didn't include it on that set. And everybody just thought this was an act of willful perversion. <laughs> but I, I think it, it was, uh, you know, a, a situation where he was never entirely satisfied with the original studio recording. Maybe he thought it was too drippy, as Dan says. So he did that little, you know, soft 1998 re-recording of it. Uh, but the reason it's so legendary is that he has hotly denied this, but nobody believes him, and I don't believe him either, that it's written about the sort of disintegration of his relationship with Mike Appel and the way he, you know, these lost suits and all of this backbiting and this fighting in the press and everything conspired against him to sort of what he thought at the time he was going to have he was blowing his big shot you know he finally had put together born to run the album that he'd always wanted to do the great rock album and and then he had to wait three years and tour endlessly and they they, they 1976 and 1977's tours are colloquially referred to by fans as the quote lawsuit tour and it's because that was when he was breaking up with the Pell and they were, you know, going back and forth in the courts and things like that. So what's the lyric? You know, he, he talks about like, you know, uh, you know, the song is nominally about like a guy who's like, I put together this great car and we go up and race it. And, you know, but then somebody betrays him. And so he says, when the promise was broken, I cashed in a few of my dreams you know, and I built that car by myself, but I needed money. So I sold it. I lived a secret that I should have kept to myself, but I got drunk one night and I told it. And you're right. It's it's a very dark thing. And he even goes and he says, Thunder Road. Oh, you were something – oh, you were so right. Thunder Road. He's he's invoking his classic song from Born to Run. But what is it? There's something dying down there on the highway tonight. Yeah, maybe it is a little depressing. I think the real reason it was kept off the album is because he thought he did a better job conveying the same completely defeatist and depressing <laughs> sentiments on Racing in the Street, which is, of course, covers a lot of the same ground. You can't have both of those songs 
on one album. So what did he do? He made a pick, and I think he made the right choice too. So I don't hate you for disliking it, Dan, but it 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 is a, a justifiably famous outtake, and it's sort of like one of those like sort of key missing pieces to understand what the whole Bruce Springsteen story was about during this era. The other one I want to mention very quickly that could have very well been on Darkness is uh, Don't Look Back. And that is in the same vein as almost Badlands and Promised Land, which is why it probably didn't make the cut. But quality-wise, I think it could have stood alongside the other songs on Darkness without any issues. Uh, you know, lyrically, uh, you know, kind of winning against long odds, fighting against long odds, uh, kind of chunky guitar riffs, kind of hard, angular sound, which very much w- would have fit on the Darkness album. But I think it was a little too similar to Badlands and The Promised Land, and you're not leaving either of those two off the album. So Don't Look Back is on the sidelines, but is on the Tracks album, too. that leads us to the uh, the eternal question scott is a dream a lie if it don't come true or is it something worse that sends us to talk about the river that is the next album the last album that we'll be covering during this show and uh yeah if you thought racing in the street was a depressing song you thought darkness <laughs> on the edge of town was a depressing song go listen to the river and then then climb into the bathtub and slowly open a vein i can't believe this song is always included on its greatest hits i guess musically it is a good song but if I, I could tell you you know this is a good album and it is in an objective sense melodically a good song i can't tell you any piece of music i would less la- rather listen to <laughs> than the river because that's the saddest damn thing you will ever hear and yet it is only the second most depressing song to end one of the one of the records on the river (laughs) (laughs) i think i think wreck on the highway at least you know uh, yeah that other guy died but he's okay (laughs) (laughs) i actually think wreck on the highway is a fantastic song okay what are we talking about this is bruce springsteen's epic double album all great artists are supposed to have an epic double album aren't they well the question here is should the river have actually been a triple album or should it have been a single album or should it have been a better selected double album i would probably uh come down on that last uh option but this is the one that both unites and divides fans because everybody agrees that it has some of his best ever material on it and then everybody agrees it has some of his worst or not worst but just completely like why did this get included material on it and it seems that nobody can quite agree what material that is (laughs) i would uh, of the three options you gave i would almost say uh, uh, not that i would do this commercially but a, a triple album i mean there's enough left off which we'll get to in a bit um, and I think the stuff that is on both of the, uh, the, the albums that, that exist in the river are good enough to, to stick around, but the ones that are left off also 
uh, can can stand there too. You know, this is unlike darkness because it is not darkness uh, nonstop throughout the entire album. Uh, there's an effort, perhaps, to show you know, in, in in my mind, a fuller picture of what life among the darkness is. Right? If darkness maybe gives you a slice in a, in a in a hard slice, this is more of a uh, of a fuller picture. You know, there are moments of uh, levity. There are moments of just rocking out like uh, you can look uh, or crush. And then on you, you have side three, which opens with point blank. Yes. Then it has a song about dying in Cadillac Ranch, and it ends with stolen car, which yeah. is almost as dark as the river. <laughs> Yeah, and and what is fadeaway three or four? I, I don't have that. Fadeaway is also on that on side. Yes, right. And 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 so you have all of that, all of that next to each other in places. Um, and I, I I do like that about the river, a, a conscious decision to sort of show you everything, serious and goofy and dark and hopeful, and it all exists on the same album in the same place. Um, and one thing I want to point out here. I mentioned at the very start of the show, um, you know, Bruce Springsteen's uh, songwriting, I think, lyrically gets a, a ton of attention, rightfully so. But his songwriting from a from a melodic standpoint, from a music standpoint, there are a lot of songs on the river. And again, remember, I, I'm hearing many of these songs for the very first time as I'm prepping for this show. There are a number of songs and not even the ones you might think that that stuck with me in my in my head days after I heard them for the very first time. And two of them are, are, are the dark ones, Point Blank and, and Fade Away, uh, from that third side. When I was going to be your Romeo, you were going to be my Julia. These days you don't wait on Romeo's, you wait on that welfare check. And on all the pretty little things that you can't ever have. And on all the promises that always end up Point Blank. Shot between the eyes Oh, point blank Black and white lies You tell to be surprised You're walking in the sights Girl, point blank And it's one false move And baby, the lights go Both those are, 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 are not, you know, upbeat, happy, rock and roll numbers, but both of them have this, this melody, this, this hook that really works well. And I think in many corners of these four records, or four sides, I should say, four records, uh, four sides, you really see how good Springsteen is at, at writing melodies. They are just super sharp, even on those slower moments, uh, and that helps make them even more powerful in Independence Day. Another place where I think that, that the melody is just super, super strong. Um, you know, there are there are portions here that are that are extremely light, maybe you know too light. I mean, what, what do you think about Sherry Darling, which is uh, I think Bruce has even said is just a, it's a frat rock song. It's it's all he was trying to write a party song. There's there's whooping in the background. There's noises. It's it's supposed to be. It was supposed fun. to be like you know the same you know the Bobby Fuller Four. Right. I fought the law and the law one kind of a thing. That was the way I heard him. Louis, Louis. Yeah, Louis, Louis. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that exists. I mean, and, and by the way, that was an outtake from um, 
uh, or yes. an offcutting from Darkness on the Edge of Town. Yeah. It's funny about the river. There's so many of these songs that actually came from Darkness. You thought that you thought that Darkness on the Edge of Town was too dark. Well, imagine if it included <laughs> Point Blank and Independence Day, which were both recorded originally for that album. But then, you know, right, it would have been right up there with like, you know, you know a Velvet Underground album or something <laughs> like that in terms of like, you know, bleakness. Uh, but yes, and instead there is this this sort of light and shadow contrast that goes on on the record yeah and just yeah, you know and, po- and, and point blank independence day and cherry darling are all played pretty extensively on tour on the darkness tour exactly right i mean almost every every single gig had one and uh it, they were pretty good performances and they're actually basically the same performances that you're going to end up hearing point blank has like a longer spiel in in the middle of it that i think ends up getting subtracted out and put into another song later but anyways what were you saying scott no i i was gonna allow you guys to talk as well except um uh, Wreck of the Highway, which uh, Dan alluded to earlier, which which closes this uh, album, is just so so powerful. Um, you know, the guy is haunted by seeing this hit and run crash. Uh, can't sleep. He's thinking about it. He thinks about who's affected by the crash: the wife or the girlfriend. He sees this, you know, pictures the state trooper knocking on the door, um, and and it's almost entering another. Uh, section of of songwriting in which you're not just contemplating your life in this town or you know this this dead end town but now you're thinking about the future and what it could be and and what what impact your life has on others life it's it's a it's a really interesting way to to end uh, the four sides of the river Sometimes I- I also think that it's one of the very few times during this era, and actually during most of his eras, that you hear Springsteen doing something that sounds vaguely country. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's you know you don't have you don't have pedal steel guitars and you know twang and stuff like that, but you have the way that Danny Federici plays that organ uh, over top of the uh, uh, of the uh, you know piano by Roy Bitton is just so sort of you know plaintive and, and lonely and haunting. You do feel like you know you like it's the sound of somebody late night driving on like a country road. Last night I was out driving and I saw this, this horrible accident and uh, the way it ends with just that, just the quiet comping into the distance, just the band playing very, very quietly and fading out. It's so low key. It's so subtle. Uh, It is, I think one of the best moments on an album where the big upbeat pop moments are, are generally my least favorite. I mean, I don't dislike Hungry Heart, 
everyone likes Hungry Heart, right? Hungry Heart comes on the radio, and you know, I went to school in Baltimore, so like it's always fun <laughs> when you hear Baltimore referenced in a song. Usually, it's like you know Randy Newman talking about how Baltimore is dying, the city is dying, and it's hard. So it's kind of fun to hear Bruce say, "Like I got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. I went out for a ride, and I never came back." It's like the old urban legend about a guy who goes out for a pack of smokes and like abandons his family, and yet Bruce somehow thinks this is like fun, good times music, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that that's that's very very Bruce Springsteen thing to do. Ramrod, I Ramrod Summer. It is. I've been offended by that song. Why is that song on this album? <laughs> Crush on you shouldn't be there. You know, Jackson Cage is okay. I don't hate it, but like, there's just like this is when we say like, wouldn't have this been a much better album if he'd substituted out like some of those good timey numbers for a lot of other wonderful outtakes that had been left on the cutting room floor. Things like loose ends or you know. I want to be where the bands are. That's a fun song. Restless nights. Uh, it's it's the dark stuff on this album that does drive me. I have to admit that that I, I am drawn to his his increasing focus on like you know sort of these 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 human dramas. There's a song on this record that's called Stolen Car. That if you listen to it on the album, it you almost miss it if you're not paying attention. It's so quiet. It's so calm. You know. He, he, it's almost like a ghostly moan in the night. You know, I'm driving a stolen car through a pitch black night, and you only get the briefest outlines of what's going on. Something is wrong. There's a, a relationship, a marriage that's fallen apart, and now this guy's just on the run. He's on the run from his past. He's on the run from his mistakes. And then you go back and you, and you hear the alternate version of Stolen Car that wasn't released. It's on tracks. I think it's been released on this big river box set that you can get as well. And you hear the full version, a completely different version, a more sort of like a, kind of a classical Springsteen approach. Uh, and uh, it's one of the very few songs that will make me cry. Where like you know he talks about sitting across the river and you know there's there's a you know there's a party going on across the river you can see the dancing you can see the 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 the, the party lights shine and then he talks about how I can remember how uh, great it I can remember how it felt inside when the preacher said to me son you can kiss the bride mm. but then then as I touched her pretty little lips I felt it all slip away through my fingertips he's dreaming about. You know, reuniting. Last night I dreamed that I'd, I'd called her and I said I'd, I'd come back and we'd get back together. And now what is he doing? He's just driving a stolen car. And the worst part about it is that nobody even sees him. Nobody sees him as he drives by. He's just fading into non existence. That is Bruce Springsteen at his greatest. And 
I almost, as much as I love that alternate version, I understand why he went with this more stripped down, bare bones version. Because it was sort of like almost an artistic exercise of stripping away all of those details to the point where you knew that there was something there that had been removed that was missing, and it allows you to fill in the blanks. I think Stolen Car is one of the greatest achievements of Bruce Springsteen's career, and I think that it's uh, you know maybe kind of an uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic pick because you know I don't I don't think he plays it that often in concert because it's a huge bummer, and I don't know how often people focus on it you know as one of his great songs, but I do think that it is. Yes, I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna. First of all, I the I, I, you definitely should if you've only heard the album version go listen to that alternative version of Stolen Car. Um, and I do like the alternative version better. I, I really think the, the the songs that could have come off this album. Honestly, I've never liked Stolen Car or Drive All Night, which runs on for eight and a half minutes. Ah, well, you're wrong about Stolen Car, obviously, but you're right about Drive All Night. That's terrible. It, it's. I get why that song had to be that long, but the mere fact that it's that long kind of drags and there could have been something else there i mean the other songs you know as you said things like jackson cage and and i'm a rocker and and crush on you those are good songs uh but they're kind of generic they they could have been replaced with other things um point blank also i think is one where there's a big like musical intro that that bruce has done sometimes uh to that song live and i think it, it it actually is better than the um than the way it's arranged in the the studio um, but this definitely, you know, Bruce, of course, had recorded a single album and threw it out and decided to do a double album. This is not a case of, you know, sometimes artists who in, sort of back themselves into a double album either because they felt they should record one or because they couldn't edit themselves. Bruce very clearly made a decision that he wanted this album to feel long and sweeping, right, that he wanted to contain all these different themes. Uh, and, and that's, that's why it is, the album is the way it is. Um, you know, I love, uh, I love Sherry Darling. It's probably my favorite song on the album. 
you know, I love Cadillac Ranch, which just really kind of brings, it's just such a thumper. Um, there's an even better, I think one of the, the best live version of that, I think he does one in the, uh, the Tempe, Arizona show in 1980, just takes off. But, you know, the, the way just he brings every piece of the band into that song in succession and, and you know, makes, brings them all to the fore uh, is tremendous. Um, you know, there's so many good songs on here. Out in the Street is excellent. Um, I think the two that, um, the two that, that really, really, and, and by the way, I love Wreck on the Highway. It's, it's bleakness is uh, very much part of its appeal. The two, though, that really, really, I think uh, we shouldn't sleep on here. Um, one is Independence Day. And, and, you know, of all of Bruce's butting heads with his dad songs, and there's a number <laughs> of them. Uh, Adam raised a cane, right? <laughs> yeah, and some of them are implicit, and some of them are quite explicit about butting heads with his dad. Uh, this is the masterpiece of those, and it's um, you know, it's one of those ones that it, 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 you know, talk about sort of choking you up and getting you in the feels and all of that. I mean, it, you know, when I got to the age of moving out of the house, you know, I didn't have the kind of relationship with my dad that Bruce did, but you know, that that sense of like separating, um, and that you know, it sort of hit me on a whole separate level, which I'm sure Jeff is already dreading. Um, when, you know, my son moved out a year ago, you know, he's out of college, got a job, you know, and just that sense of like, the, he captures, Bruce captures that moment of, of having to, to, you know, make that separation from, from your family uh, in that song so well. And it just, it hits so hard. Which is, and again, another song that 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 directly in, uh, evokes, you know, sort of this biblical uh, Moses um, mm -hmm. imagery, um, and 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 lays out again this idea of consequences that there are just some things that you just you have to make certain compromises. And he talks elsewhere on the record, you know, that you know I want to marry you about you know having to face up to our responsibilities. Right? This is a very much a Bruce turning thirty and and thinking about adulthood record. Um, but the price you pay is just, it's tremendous. It, it really is. It's, um, you know, it's such a strong melody um, with the piano. And, and this is a song, I heard him do this live when he did the entire river at a show in 2016. And 
this is one song, Price You Pay, is definitely a song that, that has gotten richer as Bruce, um, you know, is older uh, and plays it maybe at a slightly different, I think he played it in a different key, a different, slightly different tempo, but to where it kind of sails. The song kind of sails, um, but it's it's a tremendous song on the record, and it it, it is very powerful piece, uh, you know that 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 has grown over time. Little girl down on the strand with that pretty little baby in your hands. Do you remember the story? The promised land How we crossed the desert sand And could not enter the chosen land On the banks of the river He stayed To face the price he paid So let the game start about the river itself the title track as i joked at the, the outset here is one of the most famously depressing hit singles of all time this is a song about uh what was it you know <clears throat> i got mary pregnant and man that was shawl she wrote and, and for my was it, for my 18th birthday i got a union card and a wedding coat mm-hmm. and then you know like and then that horrible thing like we you know like you know i act you know all of our dreams have died and you know, you know, I act like I can't remember, and Mary acts like she don't care. But yeah, I can. It, re- it's a, it is a good song, and it's it's. It, it, I mean, it's it almost plays like something you would play in a you know, like tenth grade sex ed class. Like kids don't get your girlfriend pregnant. <laughs> like, Premarital sex is bad. Here's why. Yeah. I mean, look, I you know I went to Catholic schools, and believe me, that was this song was more or less like a, a morality play, um, <laughs> and it. Uh, you know, Jeff mentioned Bruce B. Bruce's father being part Dutch, and that's where his name comes from. But don't forget, Bruce's, you know, his mother is Sicilian. He has a very kind of, you know, this kind of deep Catholic school background. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful song. Uh, it's just one of those songs where I've grown tired of it simply because the relentless gloom almost seems like, as you said, as you implied, Dan, a parody of Springsteen. But I remember us riding in my brother. Her body tan and wet down at the reservoir At night on the banks I'd lie awake And pull her close just to feel each breath she'd take Now those memories come back to haunt me They haunt me like a curse Is a dream a life that don't come true Or is it something worse 
One other one I want to mention that isn't on the album and should never have been on the album. This was a born and destined to always be B-side, and I'm glad it's a B-side, but I love it to death because it's maybe one of the, the most hysterical songs that Bruce Springsteen ever wrote. It's a song called Roulette. That's great. You guys, yeah. <laughs> okay. This is Bruce Springsteen's major nuclear paranoia song, but because it's Bruce Springsteen, he wrote it like it's a like a Sylvester Stallone action film. Yes. All right. That's what I, I have actually have written down here. The narrative could be a movie script. That's It's exactly right. the way it reads. They stopped me at the roadblock. They put up on the interstate. They put me in detention, but I broke loose and then I ran. They said they wanted to ask me a few questions, but I think they had other plans. It's like that is literally the climax of an action film. And in fact, yeah. I think it actually feels like it comes out of like you know the the ending of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when Richard <laughs> Dreyfuss is trying to get up to like Devil's Mountain or whatever. But it's 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 obviously written in the wake of Three Mile Island, and it it, it is it is would never it would have been the worst mistake in the world to include it on the album because it's so jarring you know relative to this sort of somber and thoughtful sort of personal stories that are being told on this record but man i love it to death i love it to death because it's like you know it's again it's a great story it's like i was a fireman on rikers i did my job mister i've been cheated i feel like i've been robbed uh he's talking about like how his his neighborhood got shut down because there was like a nuclear explosion or like you know a Mm -hmm. release of gas or whatever chernobyl style um you know and you know and then now he can't get back into his his neighborhood to find out what happened and the authorities are trying to detain him and again this is just this wonderful wonderful sense of frothing paranoia that you'd never associate with bruce springsteen because he's normally so controlled he's so focused he's so measured he's really careful about how he presents himself in this part of his career uh, and then you have this where he's just like he's like a bug-eyed alex jones kind of thing <laughs> folks you gotta hear roulette Down by the river that talks The night speaks in search Lights and short webs Radios Where the police patrol the street But I left behind the man I used to be Everything he believed And all that belongs to me I tried to find my way out of somewhere I thought it'd be safe And I made the roadblock And put up on the interstate And put me in detention But I was broke loose and then I ran
Yeah, it's a, it's a good thug, and, and you're right. You, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't literally, like, set off a nuclear bomb in the middle of the album and then go back to, like, something like, I want to marry you. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> in the annals of like really great tracking decisions is putting you know roulette right after uh you know fade away and wreck on the highway like <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff he left on the cutting room floor though yeah. from this day jeff mentioned loose ends we didn't count to I really love the cover version of it from Small Things, Big Things, One Day Come. Bruce's version of this is good, but the Dave Edmonds version of it is just absolutely a classic. It might be my all-time favorite sort of somebody else's version of a song Bruce gave away. Um, you know, he's got a bunch of upbeat ones, things like Beat Me in the City. Um, he's got, if you look on the, I think on the sessions, this is a song called Party Lights, which is kind of the proto version of Jersey Girl. And there's also Living on the Edge of the World. Which is interesting because it's Bruce's one sort of foray into uh, New Wave. Early North was... Jersey industrial skyline. And oh, 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 very Elvis Costello. Yeah, and he reuses some of the lyrics on that too, I think, in, in Open All Night. And there's another one called Chain Lightning, which is very kind of tense and, and it's very kind of tight rocker. So there, there, is, there is a lot, there is there's a full album yes. worth of good stuff. Not on this out. Jeff already mentioned Restless Nights, which is a really great song with a fantastic melody. And again, with the E Street Band on backing vocals, the one that I like a lot that I think, you know, would have fit, um, well, maybe next to I Want to Marry You, which is I Want to Be With You, uh, perhaps too similar. But uh, clearly like a, a power pop raspberries tribute, you know, I Want to Be With You is the name of a raspberry song as well. But uh, it's got this great descending bass line that heads into the chorus. Bruce's vocals are very loose, very passionate. Uh, you know, this song could be played at a wedding. Not Jeff's wedding. He picked a different song. Uh, but it could be a wedding song. Till they rip out my heart, I want to be with you. Right in the chorus. It's just a fun, upbeat pop. And again, uh, just Bruce Springsteen, especially around these river sessions, I think just had a tremendous way with uh, with melody. And especially there on, on sort of his, the, the power pop Bruce in I Want to Be With You. Hey! Sleep. 
are so many wonderful B-sides and outtakes from the River Sessions that there's no way you can ever really mention them all. There's an alternate version of You Can Look But You Better Not Touch that's better than the one that was actually released on the album. It was the one that he was going when, – when this was supposed to be a single-disc single, uh, single disc album, that was the one he was going to put on. It's kind of a rockabilly thing. That's great. There's Where the Bands Are. There's there's this stupid thing called uh, Be True, which is basically just an excuse to hear Clarence Clemens blowing that crap out of his <laughs> horn. And, you know, it's all about the, the, the actual verses themselves, the melody. It, it, it's 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 by number stuff. It, it isn't very inspired. But then all of a sudden you get to, to Clarence going, and you're like, yeah. And you're just like doing that thing where you're fist pumping in the audience at a stadium. Uh, there's you know, uh, was it Bring On the Night? Nobody ever talks about that song. It's another one that just like, found its way out on tracks. You could get lost for a very long time in the stuff that didn't make it onto the river. And then you have to reckon with the stuff that actually is on the river itself. You know, you, you can't just listen to, you know, Cindy and Ricky Wants a Man of Her Own and Dollhouse all the time. You're going to have to reckon <laughs> with uh, Wreck on the Highway and Stolen Car and Point Blank and things like that. Um, this is. I would say we'll kind of go down and sort of this is the way we'll end this first episode of the two-parter. So this is his most musically fertile period. The, the mm-hmm. period that runs from like the 1979, uh, the River Sessions, uh, 1979, 1980, but all the way through to the Born in the, Run, Born in the USA Sessions. So going all, all the way through 84, uh, he's going to put together, release – and record and keep in the vaults and then only release much later more music than he ever does throughout the rest of his career combined. Um, this is obviously per- the period of his greatest commercial success too, right? You know, nobody mentioned it, but The River is his first number one album. Yes. Uh, and this is the one that makes him a commercial force. Hungry Heart becomes a big hit, big hit single. The River mysteriously becomes a big hit single too because I guess people just want to like listen to suicidal music when they, you know, cruise around in their their convertibles uh but this is the era where he becomes the bruce springsteen that will then take on the 80s uh of course as we'll discuss next time we we gather together he does one very interesting left turn before he gets to that uh but this is a fantastic record and it's an era it should be explored not just as a record but as an era it really does need to be emphasized that to hear the river as an album is to hear one thing but then you really do need to go back and hear you know as paul harvey might say the rest of the story (laughs) and go get leo just at least disc two of tracks that'll probably do you just fine just to hear how much music was left off of it and I guess that's where we will end this part one of our look at Bruce Springsteen's career. We'll pick it up with part two, of course. Uh, and we're going to do a little different here, of course. An interesting variation. Yeah. So we always do, you know, in a multi-part episode, we do give you the two albums of the five songs at the end of each episode to sort of break down the career. But because there is so much uh, material left on the cutting room floor that would eventually emerge, and because... Jeff owns every second of Bruce Springsteen playing live from 1972 through 1979 or whatever it is. Uh, we're gonna do a, a, a we're gonna do five songs that you can find on the you know releases, and then five songs that either are uh, are are you know B sides or or left off of albums or emerge later or or live tracks to sort of give you a more fuller uh, fuller picture of what Springsteen was doing during this time. So you're actually gonna hear well up to. 
30 different songs from your three hosts here today. Uh, Buckle we, up, buddy. Yes, we always begin with our guest, Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review. Dan, you, the two albums and then uh, a total of 10 songs. All right, so the two albums, so Born to Run has to be one of them. And honestly, I'm going to go with The River. Uh, I mean, I think The River and Darkness are both. It's, it's hard to choose between the two, but I think of the two, The River has more songs that I enjoy listening to the studio versions as opposed to the live versions of them. Um, but they're both tremendous albums, and The River maybe gets the, uh, the vote because it's longer, so there's more music. Um, the five songs, I, I think, I mean, one of those has to be either Thunder Road or Born to Run. I'm going to go with Thunder Road. Um, I think it's just, it's just a tremendously evocative piece of music. Um, Badlands, for I think the reasons that I already said. Uh, Independence Day, The Price You Pay, and I, I think we may even have an interpretive disagreement here over whether the songs that are on um, <laughs> tracks and the other releases, which which bin they belong in, but uh, I'm actually going with one of those here, which is Loose Ends, which is not on the, it, it was from the River Sessions, it's on uh, it's on tracks, it's on 18 tracks, um, so you can get a, a, you know, an officially released studio version of it, and it is just such a tremendous song. Uh, really, really great, uh, you know, powerful lyrics and, and, and music together. Um, the five, the five not official releases, um, two of these are going to be covers. Uh, one is Bruce doing, uh, Bob Dylan's I Want You from Live at the Main Point. And, and generally speaking, I think, I think we probably are all in agreement that there's, there's a lot of sort of famous great Bruce shows that you should own uh from you know 78 75 80 you know the nassau coliseum show in in 1980 for example on new year's eve um but i, I think if you can only own one um live bruce set it's going to be live at the main point from early 75 and he does a live version of bob dylan's i want you that is achingly beautiful it's one of the greatest covers i've ever heard well now this kind of young man yearning um and and it has the violin and it's just beautiful the other one from that set that record that we talked about already is wings for wheels um the proto version of, of thunder road we've talked about the lyrics but don't sleep on the um just tremendous clarence sax solos at the end of that song um 
the other cover I'm including here, which is from the uh, Bruce's first overseas show, which has been officially released, the Hammersmith Odeon show in, uh, uh, in 1975. He closes the show with quarter to three, which was a frequent show closer. And I really think this is as good as the E Street Band you're ever going to hear um, in any show on any track. Um, it's really just about my favorite live Bruce performance. It captures the breakneck tempo, the the amazing cohesion of the band. It's if you can see the live version of it, it's kind of funny because you know Clarence is in his like white three piece suit and little Stevens in his you know one of these real seventies red suits, and the rest of the band is dressed like they showed up for a construction job. Bruce is wearing a ski hat, but um, you know, the whole performance is amazing. They stop and start. Bruce holds the crowd in the palm of his hand. Um, they've got, you know, Clarence is like, he's literally spinning in circles while he's doing his sax solos. It's just, it is a, a virtuoso of, of live music. Um, the two other live performances I'll add, one is, uh, I mentioned 10th Avenue Freeze Out. Get any version of that, Hammersmith or, or the other 75 to 78 shows. And then finally, the... Um, live version of Sherry Darling from the Nassau Coliseum New Year's Eve show in 1980, uh, which is just another example of just Clarence going absolutely berserk on the saxophone at the end of that song. And it's just, it just goes on and on and on. And, and, and it, it is unbelievable work of, uh, of power. You know, Bruce always wanted to have like a 10 piece band, which he couldn't afford until uh, just the last few years. But, <laughs> Uh, the fact that he had to instead make Clarence his entire horn section for years uh, pays off in in so many ways. Uh, and and I read an interview with him recently. Bruce talked about wanting to make Clarence's sax solos sound like something you could sing, and they really are. And but but when you hear him just go absolutely go wild live, it is like nothing else. All right, uh, my two albums are going to be Darkness on the Edge of Town and, uh, and the River. Into the songs, and I, I, I try for the songs at least to maybe give a template for people like me who are somewhat new to Bruce Springsteen's catalog. Uh, what would be the most attractive for them? So the, the five songs, the five studio songs, uh, Rosalita, uh, Thunder Road from, from Born to Run. Uh, Adam raised a cane from Darkness along with The Promised Land from Darkness. And then uh, obviously one from The River and I go back and forth a bit. It'd be The River or something else. I, I was with a wreck on the highway on there uh, as the fifth song on that list of five. For the, the live and, and those left off the tracks, I, I'm not totally um, not capable, but I'm not qualified to sort of go through these live performances and say one is so much better than the other, I think, because I have not heard anywhere near as much live material as Jeff or Dan. But there's two songs, two live performances I'll, I'll, I'll point to. Uh, one is the the Spirit in the Night from the, uh, from the Hammersmith show in 75, which, again, Spirit in the Night and the, in, the, in the album version is fine. You'll never want to listen to it again if you hear it live. That's a fantastic version. And the other live one I'll point out is one that Dan mentioned earlier in the show, which is Incident on 57th Street from the Nassau performance in uh, in 1980, which is out there and available. Those two live performances, I think, really elevate both of those songs quite a bit. So the three songs, uh, not on any of the albums proper, The Fever, 
Um, I want to be with you, which we just talked about uh, with the river, and then an outtake from darkness. I, I think "Don't Look Back" would be, again, would, would fit just fine next to anything else on the album, but just a little too similar to two of the most important tracks on there, "Badlands" and, and "Promised Land," and so that was left off. But "Don't Look Back" is well worth tracking down. Jeff, over to you. Well, uh, I'm going to surprise absolutely nobody by saying that the first album I'll choose is The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. I'm actually a little bit scandalized that neither of you picked it. Uh, <laughs> it is very clearly Bruce's best record. And then the second one was tough. I didn't know whether I was going to pick The River or Darkness, and I think I'm going to go with Darkness on the Edge of Town. From this era, uh, just because it's more streamlined, it's more focused. It doesn't have the, the upbeat and fun anthemic numbers that you get on uh, the, the river, uh, but it, it has uh, sort of a relentless a relentless laser focus that it, it serves it very well, even though there are a couple of tracks which I, you know, I think maybe it could have been removed or substituted out for other songs. My five songs for is just as really regular studio discography. First one would be Kitty's Back. From the Wild, the Innocent, Scott was right. He knows me well after three years of doing this show together. He understands exactly what it is that's going to you know, honk my horn. And that is a song that absolutely does it. I love every aspect of it. I especially love the instrumental breakdown. If you want to understand why David Sanctius was so, such a wonderful part of the E Street Band in the early phase of their career, here is why. Uh, second would be Incident on 57th Street. Might be the best song of all time might be Springsteen's best song of all time. Uh, there might be another one coming up on the the second episode of this show that we'll discuss that competes with it, but it's up there. Third, Thunder Road. Put a gun in my head, I have to pick one from Born to Run. It'll be Thunder Road. Fourth is The Promised Land. It's kind of the same situation on Darkness. It's a very even album. There's a lot of fantastic highlights, but The Promised Land is the one that's always spoken to me. And then finally, if I had to pick one from The River, ah, I, I, I wavered on this or point blank, but I think the one that I go with is Wreck on the Highway, which uh, I think is, is probably the finest closing song that Springsteen has ever had in his career, uh, precisely for being so low-key and understated. Uh, for my five live and outtake songs, the first one I'll say is Tokyo, and the band played. It's live. Uh, if you get my two-CD compilation, it's actually a hybrid of two separate performances. <laughs> but the one that, if you want to go find it on YouTube, it's June 3rd, 1974. That's the one you want. Second, I'd say Zero and Blind Terry. It's an outtake from the E Street Shuffle Sessions. Uh, third, I'd say, this one's fairly obscure. It's a, a cover of a song called You Mean So Much to Me, a wonderful old soul song that Springsteen did full band wonderfully, uh, but... Uh, in this case, does uh, on a radio session acoustically. You've got Clarence just gently honking away on the saxophone in the background. You've got the guy singing backing vocals, but it's really just Bruce on an acoustic guitar and Danny Federici on accordion. It does kind of make you realize just how elemental uh, the accordion of all things was <laughs> to the early phase of Bruce Springsteen's career. The fourth odd pick is She's the One. The album version I do not like. I, I think it's 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 neutered. But that early version that you can find on the famous Main Point concert from February fifth, nineteen seventy five. That's amazing. That's the only way that song should ever be heard. And then the last one I'll pick. And then you know the way to end this show is uh, maybe with the most heartbreaking song that Bruce Springsteen ever wrote. And then not moribund and you know you know endlessly gloomy and depressing and morbid the way I kind of feel like the river is, but genuinely heartbreaking and genuinely moving. And that's the alternate version of Stolen Car. Last verse of that song, uh, every time I hear it, I, I just 
collapse into pieces because I think it conveys uh, the inability to deal with one's mistakes and you know the hope that you can come back from it, but then that resignation that no, you're going to keep on running and you're going to keep on fleeing from the errors that you've made for the rest of your life. That stolen car, that's what that song was always about, and that it might be one of his greatest outtakes ever. Last night I dreamed I made the call. I swore to return and stay forevermore. Once again we stood on the wedding steps at Victory Hall And walked arm in arm through the chapel door I can remember how good I felt inside When the preacher said, son, you may kiss the bride But as I leaned over to touch her pretty lips I felt it all slip away through my fingertips and I'm driving a stolen car through a pitch black night I keep telling myself everything's gonna be alright But I ride by night and I travel in fear No matter what I do or where I drive Nobody ever sees me when I ride There is the political beats look on the first, well, not exactly half, but the first decade or so of Bruce Springsteen's prolific career back in a couple of weeks for part two, in which we'll have to cover a whole lot of time and uh, not a whole lot of, uh, of uh, recording time, and not a whole lot of show time. But that's a that's a problem for a different day. I expect at least an hour on the album Magic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we, see about we can't that, do we? a Springsteen show without a really long encore, guys. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> We're going to come back and play Twist and Shout for eight minutes. We, we uh, thank our guest on the program, a senior writer for National Review, Dan McLaughlin. You can find him on Twitter at Baseball Crank. Dan, we expect you to be back for the next show or else it's going to be very awkward. All right. Thanks to uh, Jeff Blair, of course. We finally take care of at least half of one of the big ones left hanging out there, and uh, I-, I hope we have uh, done justice thus far. We're big game hunters, Scott. We're taking down all the big beasts. Yes. Find uh, Jeff online at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes coming to you through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Go right to nationalreview.com and click on Podcasts. You can find us there as well. This is Political Beats. Find us on Twitter, too, at Political underscore Beats. Join the conversation or on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.